Welcome to the Sneaky Dragon Listening Party with my dad and my sister Mary. Hello, gentle party goers, and welcome to Sneaky Dragon Listening Party. My name is David Dedrick. And my name is Mary Dedrick. And Mary. Yes. Uh, welcome back to the show. Thanks. You've been away for a while? Nope. Haven't been. You, you've missed a couple episodes. Of course, you were on vacation, as everyone knows. Not true. Replaced. It's impossible to go on vacation right now. <laughs> Sorry to bring reality to, into this. Replaced by a robot you. Oh. But uh, there were a couple of giveaways. Which were? Uh, the strange... Uh, Instead of answering questions, you would just go beep boop. Right. It was a little obvious. Yeah, it kind of gave it away. I'd Dad. Like, what do you think of that song, Mary? Beep boop. Dad. Yes, did dear. you go through and edit out all of my <laughs> contributions to the last two episodes with beep boops? <laughs> might, have, might have done that. Just for this bit? It's, uh, it's a little excessive. Because it kind of could have told me I could have actually taken a vacation from the show. <laughs> hey, dear. How's it going? It's good. Hey, Dad. Yes. Happy birthday. Oh, thank you. We're recording this on your birthday. We are recording on my birthday. That is bad planning on my part. We could have recorded it yesterday when it was my birthday, but that's okay. Oh, well. You know, how would I rather celebrate my birthday, dear, than sitting with you Mm -hmm. in the shop, I mean, mean, studio, Yep. uh, talking about music. The Stu Stu Studio. Stu Stu Studio. Yep. Here, thank you for pointing at the sign, just to make it clear. The Stu Stu Studio that, uh, yeah, this, you know. What more do I want yeah. from life? Well, I mean, instead of doing this, yep. we could all be inside um, watching things separately on our headphones while mom does a lesson over <laughs> Zoom in the dining room. Yeah, that's that's fun too. <laughs> so yeah, no, let's avoid that. This is better. This is better. Last episode, we had some fun. I haven't heard, we haven't had a comment yet about the last episode. So what I'm assuming is that everyone hated it. Probably. But yeah, you think so too? Yeah, I think so. Okay. Makes sense. Yeah. I can't think of anything else that, any other reason why they wouldn't. Yeah, exactly. They're just like, ugh, that was ridiculous. But what was interesting (laughs) is Mm -hmm. that both Uncut and Mojo put out uh, top 20, or not top 20, but top of the top, you know, like best best songs of the year CDs. I believe Mojo did a top 75, or Uncut did a top 75. They did in the magazine, but for the CD, they chose like whatever, 20 songs or something. Right. And... And uh, what was interesting is that there was no overlap between what I liked and what they liked at all. Like we n- we didn't dis- we didn't agree at all. Which normally mm-hmm. there's a little bit of overlap between my lists and their lists, but this year nothing, nothing. Huh. Which I thought was c- kind of curious. In fact, a lot of the people they chose were were albums that I didn't think very much of at all. Really? Yeah, yeah. That ones I was really heard a lot of hype about, and then I listened to them, and I was I thought they were disappointing. Right. Huh. So what do I know? That's the question. I don't know. Not much. Well, I think that music is pretty su- subjective, so I think you're probably fine. Well, music is subjective. I mean, that's true. I mean, yeah. I just I just find it interesting that, um, you know, you can come to the end of the year. I mean, there is so much music, though, of course, that you really could put together. Not me, but I think, you know, any, anyone could put together a list of, a d- different list of song, of albums they loved from a year, and it, no one would have, or there wouldn't be much overlap between mm-hmm. things. So, but anyway, I just thought it was interesting, because normally... Our tastes tend to mesh a little bit, which is why I like those magazines. Because right. I trust their I trust their opinions because we do share a similar DNA in terms of musical tastes. Mm-hmm. But in this this year, no go. Interesting. Well, the Great Divide. I guess so. I'll never read them again. It seems 
Seem- but like a bit much, but mm, okay. Well, see me a lot of money. <laughs> so, uh, Mary. Yes. We're, so we took a break last week. Not last week, but the week before. We took a bit of a break. We, okay. We, not that we took a break from the show, but we just, we kind of went off of our normal uh, pattern of, right. of talking about we the de- mixtape. We deviated from the norm. We deviated from the norm. Mm-hmm. And then I think we're going to have a further deviation this week because rather than go to the next CD in it, chronologically, we're going to leap ahead a little bit to one of the very final mixtapes I did. Okay. And But just because I wanted to get in a novelty mix before we get near the end of the, the show. Right. It seems I like the novelty songs, but I have a feeling that you're not very fond of them. Well, it depends on the song. And, oh, okay. Oh, that's going to be about it. Going to backtrack now. Just joking. It just feels like people kind of are like, well, these songs are okay, but they're not, you know, they're kind of outside of what you normally do, Dave. So yeah. we don't like it. Well, I mean, I think that some novelty songs are more fun than sound good. <laughs> you know? Well, I try. I do try to avoid that. Like, well, I I want songs that will are listenable, attuable, many timesable. Okay. And, uh, and so... That's what I'm trying for anyway. Right. Because there are lots of goofy songs, but they're only really entertaining once. And then once you've heard it, you're like, well, I get it. That's that's fine. We don't need to we don't need to do that anymore. But I, you know, I'm hoping for something that's musical and is interesting. Yeah. And is also a novelty song. And by the way, novelty doesn't mean to me humorous necessarily. Right. It could just be something that's weird or quirky yeah. that someone did, you know, because mm. really, how often do you actually like laugh at a novelty song? never yeah probably probably never yeah even something that is kind of funny you know it's just kind of funny it's just yeah you know but i mean i rarely laugh out loud at like an archie comic either it doesn't mean it's not funny well but i mean like the flying purple people eater like are you rolling around on the floor busting a gut over that song no but i don't have that reaction to any anything to any piece of media i kind of go by goofy grade as being sort of my ne plus ultra of of what of what like a novelty record is, and right. that and that contains like bubblegum music, yep. garage rock, yeah, old rock and roll songs, mm-hmm. kind of more modern rock and roll songs, and then songs that are clearly novelty songs, right? But know? I mean, I don't I don't think Goofy Greats is entirely novelty songs. I think that there's there's some like more serious songs on there, but or not like serious songs, but, but like it's, it's not they're not serious songs, but they're all kind of goofy in yeah. their own way. Right. You know, a song called Yummy, Yummy, Yummy. It's yeah. just in, by its nature. It's goofy. Right. You know, and that's that's sort of a novelty. Mm-hmm. That's the novelty of those songs. Yeah. Is that they're kind of silly. One, two, three, red light. I guess it counts as a novelty song because it's based on a, ch- a children's game. So... What about like Rock and Robin? Well, it's a song about a bird that's that's a rock and a rock and roll bird. I mean, that's a, that's a novelty song writ large. Okay. But like, <laughs> I feel like you're widening your... Your idea of what a novelty song is, like, does it have like if anything has if any song yeah. has a humorous concept in it, could it be considered a novelty song? To me, yes. To me, yes. Okay. So yeah. do you think of like so like there's like a fair amount of like novelty songs that the Beatles did then? Yeah. In your opinion? Yeah. Yeah. Like which which song are you thinking of? Like Yellow Submarine. Oh, totally a novelty song. It's full of sound effects. Or it's... like. Uh, Maxwell Silverhammer? Yeah. Damn right it's a novelty song. Once again, it has someone banging on an anvil with a mallet. <laughs> with what a hammer. about the raccoon one? Rocky Raccoon? I don't think that song's really funny. I, if you wanted to say it was a novelty song, I wouldn't just, I wouldn't argue with mm. you. But definitely like Wild Honey Pie on that album is a is a novelty song. Right. I don't know that song. Or your uh, birthday. That's a that's a that's a crazy novelty song I don't to know me. That song. Um do 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 do. You know, say it's your birthday. It's my birthday too, yeah. 
Yes, we're going to a party party. You remember that one? Nope. I mean, I don't think it's really that funny. I think, you know, I don't know if it really funk. But, you know, it's a birthday song, so you could say it's a novelty song. Mm-hmm. Like, yeah, I think I think novelty, you know, it doesn't mean, like, novelty doesn't mean, like, it's a bad song or that it's, like, that it's kitsch or that, that, that it's that. classless or whatever. Yeah. It can still be, like, a really good song yeah. and be funny. What mm-hmm. I find, what I find fun about novelty songs and which i think is kind of dying out nowadays is the idea that you can do novelty songs and not be a novelty band yes right like nowadays we just have we just have weird al yankovic right but no one's going to take him seriously as an artist like he's not going to put on an album of his serious songs like Mm -hmm. on his records he'll put some semi-serious songs in there right but most of the time it's just him doing you know either polka versions of songs Mm -hmm. of popular songs or doing like you know Kind of clever uh, spins on popular right. songs, but he's not going to do like an album of you know because that's just he's been shoot he's been like pigeonholed into being a comedian or funny you know a funny songwriter and that that's fine I mean if he's comfortable with that that's great but what I'm more interested in is a time when music was broad enough that a band like the Beatles could do Yellow Submarine and also do Eleanor Rigby on the same album like that's interesting to me you know that you can have you know Octopus's Garden mm-hmm. and I want you. She's so heavy mm-hmm. on the same album. When both of the when is clearly a, a novelty song. Yeah, that a song that children would enjoy. That would be fun on Sesame Street, and it was fun on Sesame Street. What's wrong? Oh, your computer just went all black. It says no signal detected. I was because we're not. I'm not doing anything, so I just shut down for a bit. Mm, okay. So that to me is is interesting. You mm. know, the, the fact that like the Rolling Stones could do um, the Spider and the Fly, but also do. 19th Nervous Breakdown. You know? Although 19th Nervous Breakdown is kind of like, well, I wouldn't say it's a novelty song, but it's kind of fun. But you know what I mean, right? Like, so you, you know, that this is felt like in the past, people's taste allowed for more, a broader palette of sounds. And nowadays we have kind of a narrowing. And, you know, once you're pigeonholed as like a country rock band, well, you're not going to start doing uh, disco songs. And if you do, people are going to be very confused by you. Right. But I mean, well, I think we've talked about this a bit before, but I do feel like in certain genres there is more room for that like in country specifically okay like people there are there do tend to be country songs that have like humorous bends to them as well as like more serious songs sure sure but country music and this is a i think and this is was the case with rock and roll but i think it's gone away now but country music is sort of the last home for story songs yeah you know and so you can have humorous or sad stories but Mm -hmm. you can tell you can do either of those things you know Whereas in rock music, that's ten- tended to go away. There's no one doing like a Mr. Bojangles very much anymore or or Patches or or mm. I think we have story songs on, on this collection right? of songs that are, are, you know, on here because they're telling a story. And in fact, I think we'll be playing one on this episode, actually, a story song. And so those those are interesting to me. Like, yeah, so I don't, to me, like a novelty song doesn't necessarily have to be aiming to be funny. Right. But also like if it's quirky or kind of weird yeah. or if it's doing something that's different than mm. say what the artist would normally do. If it's slightly, slightly, or they're clearly goofing around. Right. You know, clearly having fun. Like The Who did all kinds of crazy songs that are just like goof em ups. Mm-hmm. You know, Uncle Ernie on, on, on Tommy or um, Dogs, The Single Dogs or... I'm a far now. I'm a farmer. On um, which ended up on yeah. That's right. It's from Odds and Sods. Like they were more than willing to like have some fun. Like all all of the Who Sell Out is just full of jokey songs and little like pretend commercials and stuff like that. Like yeah, they're just like they were willing to have fun with with their sound. I think the Kings would be the same again. Like they Mm -hmm. had no problem with doing songs that were, you know, uh, just goofy fun. Yeah. 
so yeah, I think that's uh, I think that's kind of gone away. I think people nowadays, I think artists are are very wary of yeah, wary of being you know not taken seriously. You know, it's kind of like how come a comedy never wins the Oscar? Well, it has because Annie Hall won the Oscar, but but how come it's very rare that, that happens? And it's just because you know people don't take comedy seriously, whereas right. dramas are serious. You know, you know, like so. When, that's how you. That's how you get an Oscar, right? You mm-hmm. do a serious movie. You don't. Yeah. You don't go. I'm going to to win an Oscar. I'm going to do the funniest movie everyone's yeah. anyone's ever seen. No, to that's... quote to quote Elliot Kalin, you do yeah. uh, an Oscar yelling scene. Yeah, yeah, or yeah, <laughs> something like the joke. You know that you do like a Holocaust movie. You know. Yeah. And then, or if you have a, a, you know, some sort of disabled disabling part. You know, so that also. I guess that's going to going to get thrown out the window now in our times now, where you can't pretend that you have a that you're disabled. You have to actually be disabled in order to play the role, but. Uh, but yeah, in the past that was a that was a go to. Mm-hmm. My God, he could act well pretending he was in a wheelchair. This man deserves an Oscar. <laughs> so, having said all of that, Mary, mm-hmm. I guess we should start with some music. Yes, I guess so. After all our serious talk about the the fun of <laughs> novelty songs, <laughs> let's get really serious about these. Let's try and figure out how they work, or let's play some and have some fun. Sure. So let's start off. Okay. With a British band. This is the soft. This is the Soft Boys. From 1978, and the song is Bracket, I Want to Be an End Bracket, Angle Poise Lamp. Let's give a listen, everyone.
All right, and we're back. And Mary? Yes? What do you think of the Soft Boys? Well, I think it's pretty nuts that they predicted the Soft Boy aesthetic. What's that? It's like a it's like a trend for guys to be it's like a specific sort of aesthetic. Like like what? Like do, on. Do they wear like um, padded suits? Yep, they wear padded suits. No. So according to BuzzFeed News, yeah. BuzzFeed News says it's someone who um someone who who buys their clothes from Urban Outfitters. Um, but it says some popular culture examples are Seth Cohen from The O.C., hmm. Joseph Gordon-Levitt's character in 500 Days of Summer, uh, Joe from You. Yeah, it's like just like they tend to dress like in like, I don't know, in like sort of a more feminine way than a more masculine way, huh. generally. Like sweaters and um, like knits and like Timothy Chalamet. The way that he dresses and looks. Okay. That's kind of... That's the new thing. The idea. Yeah. Well, it's not new. It's been around for a couple of years. I'm, but... I'm glad that's coming in. It's time for it's time that men embrace their softness. Yes, I agree. So, uh, you're impressed by the fact that they predicted this trend yep. 30 years before it happened. Exactly. Or even more, 40 years before it happened. Yep. Uh, what, what else did you think of them? I thought it was a fun song. It is a fun song. I like you're the right. song. It was very good. Yeah. The problem for the soft boys is they were out of step with the times. Oh, yeah. So, it's 1978... Everyone's burning their Beatles records and throwing their Rolling Stones albums. Actually, throwing their brother's Rolling Stones albums in the garbage can. Their brother's <laughs> like, what What did I do? <clears throat> like, this stuff is garbage. Crash. But the Soft Boys formed in Cambridge, like Pink Floyd, from the same area. And then the band featured two excellent songwriters in, in Robin Hitchcock, who was a super prolific songwriter, and Kimberly Rue. And unfortunately for Rue, cause, because Hitchcock was so prolific. Rue like the street or like the cooking uh, thing? Uh, no, Rue like R-E-W. R-E. Oh, like the website. Is there a website called that? Real Estate Weekly. Oh, okay. Me and, me and Eve's favorite website. <laughs> okay, cool. So, yes, Kimberly, Real, Real Estate Weekly. And like I say, unfortunately <laughs> for him, because Hitchcock was so prolific, he didn't really get an opportunity to, to feature any of his songwriting in, at any time during the soft boys. That's unfortunate. Yeah, yeah. But the problem for the band was they were way too influenced by the 60s mm. and by a kind of a 60s aesthetic right. to be in step with what was going on in 1978 or 1977 when they released their first EP. In 1978, though, Radar Records, that it was a, a independent record label, and I put that in quotation marks because they were a subsidiary of Warner Brothers Records, so actually a really big, kind of like Sire, as Sire was too, which even though that was supposed to be like an independent record label, it had the big money behind it. Right. But yeah, Radar Records, which... Was it's like where... when you're like, oh, I'm going to support this new iced tea that's come on the market, yeah. Peace Tea. Yeah. I'll just buy that. It's this new independent tea that's not owned by anyone like Nestle. <laughs> I'm pretty sure it's owned by Nestle. <laughs> exactly. Or Pepsi. Is Nestle and Pepsi owned by the same person? I don't know. And it's bad. Don't buy Peace Tea. It tastes bad. <laughs> and also, Nestle's bad. <sighs> well, there goes the sponsorship I was going to talk about in the show today. Well, for peace tea? Yeah, forget about it, Mayor. Dad, forget if you're going to take an iced tea sponsorship, it should really be from Good Host. Why? Because that's our family iced tea brand. It is, because it's the only one that tastes any good. Yeah. That's a powdered iced tea. Yeah. You can buy here in Canada. Yes. I doubt you can buy it in the States. I doubt you can, actually. Or anywhere else Or anywhere else in the world. Because <laughs> only in Canada do we like this particular iced tea that we have here. I know. Well, there is places where you can get sweet tea in the states, but all that yeah. means is they put sugar into into, into regular tea. Not very good. No, no. It's too sweet. I'm sorry. I hate to, I hate to tell you this, Americans. 
I know you invented it. I know you invented iced tea. I know that it would like first first came out at St. Louis, the St. Louis World Exposition or whatever in 1908 or whenever it was. Where they were like, oh, hey, let's just let this tea sit out for a little while well, that, and then serve it. That's what happened. Like They had a bunch of tea they were going to serve and then they forgot about it and they came in the room and they went, oh my gosh, all this tea, gallons <laughs> and gallons of tea that we left here and it's all cold now. I guess we'll have to throw it away. And someone said, I have an idea. Let's put ice in it and a lemon and pretend that's what we meant to do. And everyone, brilliant. And pretty soon people were like, oh, sour, bitter water. This is delicious. <laughs> this is the greatest idea I've ever heard. Let's have water that makes you go, ugh. As if, as if yeah, as if the, what is it, the tannins <laughs> in the tea wasn't bitter enough. Let's add some lemon in there. Mmm. <laughs> Cut that bitterness with some nice bitterness. Yeah. So here in Canada, some very bright person, I, I would like to pat him on the back, one day said, you know what we should do is we should take like, sugar and add some powders that taste like kind of like tea mm-hmm. and we'll just kind of put them together into a into a big giant tub tub <laughs> that you have to scoop spoonfuls out of and put in your drink <laughs> and you put too much in and it'll never quite blend into the yeah, into the and water you get down to the bottom and it's all sludgy and then you put in some more water but it doesn't taste the <laughs> same taste never tastes the same i don't know why i don't know because it's the same it is it's just the sludge so you think if you put some more water in it would taste but it no but not. it's even worse than that even if you like drink an iced tea, yeah, down to the the, the bottom, and even if yes. you got rid of that sludge, yeah, if you put another bit bit of water in there and add more iced tea to it, it's not the same. It doesn't taste the same. Hmm. I don't I don't experience that. I don't know what happens. Yeah. It's just not the same. Hmm. But anyway, yeah, good host. Oh, but also it was the peace tea uh, that we were going to have as a sponsor, but if you're imagining this uh, this tub of iced tea powder we're talking about, yeah, bigger. Bigger That's than right. you yeah, think. You don't, you <laughs> don't know. You don't understand. <laughs> you know how big this tub is. And you think, you think to yourself, well, that must last a year. Nope. <laughs> no, it does not. Why would you think that? When you could have it every night. And I and it bothers my family to no end, but I, I like to drink mine off the spoon. I do that too. Oh, you it do? Just bugs even, it just bugs even our friends. <laughs> ah, it just tastes colder that way. Yeah. I don't know what it is. Also, if you drink it from the glass that you i just drink it all in one ju- in one like <laughs> our glasses are big enough for it yeah. we need the glass as big as the as the ginormous <laughs> tub it comes in just start making it in a pitcher drinking it out of that uh, oh do you make some, a pitcher of iced tea yes but you can't have any <laughs> i never did that with iced tea but i did do that with kool-aid one time i made a big giant pitcher of kool-aid and i brought it downstairs into the tv room <laughs> with this enormous enormous Serving spoon, and I was like sipping it out of the spoon. Oh, so you continued to drink with the spoon, even with the spoon. even more. <laughs> <laughs> and then it was like the most perfect. I was going to watch TV, and I was all happy, and I was just like. <sighs> and then my friend came over, and he's like, hey, you want to come outside and play? And I'm like, no. I've got a giant picture, picture of Kool Aid, and it's an enormous spoon. He's like, no, we got to go. And I was like, ah. So I had to put it all back in the fridge and go. And then when he came back, people had drank. Yeah, well, my family were at home, and so there's no way I could sit cross-legged in the chair downstairs with a with a whole p- pitcher of Kool-Aid <laughs> and a spoon. That was not going to happen. Nope. <laughs> Anyhow, oh, and you're thinking, you're thinking to yourself, oh, that was just one Kool-Aid and a pitcher. 
No, this is a ginormous pitcher. There's two two Kool-Aid <laughs> packets and all the sugar involved all in the same one. I have not had Kool-Aid in so long. It's disappointing. Yeah. It's only good from, from when you're a kid and then it's, yeah. for some reason as an adult it, it loses its... I can I can see that. You, you're like, oh no! <laughs> Whereas iced tea is good forever. Yeah. <laughs> Never loses its... All right, so what was I saying? Oh, Radar Records. So yeah, so Radar Records paid the soft boys... They gave them some money and sent them to Rockfield Studios. Mention them again. I just I love Rockfield Studios. I'm so curious about it. It's, just, it's a, a studio on a farm, on a working farm. It's just so curious. But anyway, so they sent them to Rockfield Studios, paid for them to record a bunch of songs, and then decided to not release that album. And then, But they did release a single, which was this song plus uh, the B-side, which is called Fat Man's Son. And yeah, and I don't think it did very well anyway. They just were, like I say, just people weren't people weren't going like, yeah, psychedelia. We need more, and we need more surrealism in our music too. But they did do three albums before they split up. They did a Can of Bees, Invisible Hits, and then uh, Underwater Moonlight, which a lot of people think is their best album. But I actually, I'm a huge fan of Can of Bees, so I'd be split split to decide which was which was best. But Robin Hitchcock, do you, you, you know Robin Hitchcock, right? We played him before actually in the show. Have we? Yeah, we played a song uh, from I Often Dream of Trains. Um, I wish I were a pretty girl. I think it's called. Oh, okay, yep. And so he, he and original bassist Andy Metcalf and drummer Morris Windsor, they went and formed Robin Hitchcock and the Egyptians. And then Kimberly Rue, uh, as soon as he finished the group, he released a solo collection which featured some songs he'd recorded with the Soft Boys, some songs he recorded with the DBs, and then he kind of reformed his original group that was called the Waves, which he'd formed with a friend called Alex, Alex Cooper. And so they recorded a single... Called Alice Cooper? Alex Cooper. Oh, Alex But the band was called The Waves. And he, they were in The Waves together, and then Rue had left that band, and he joined The Soft Boys, because, well, because they were good. And then uh, and then he came back to The Waves, reformed The Waves, and he put out a, a single called, with uh, the A-side was The Nightmare, and the B-side was this really fun song called Hey War Pig. And next thing you know, they added a new singer, new lead singer, whose name was Katrina Leskinich, and they became Katrina and The Waves. Oh, okay. And had a huge hit with Walking on Sunshine. Yeah. Which was, of course, written by Kimberly Rue. Cool. And then he wrote... Um, I imagine he got a penny for that. He got some pretty pennies, I think, for yep. that song. And then he wrote a Eurovision song uh, contest winner called called uh, Love Shine a Light. Cool. As well as the song uh, Going Down to Liverpool, which is my personal favorite song by him, which was covered by the Bangles, which I mean, they did a really great job in that. But I thought before we moved on that just for the fun of it, I'd play The Waves before Katrina joined them. This is Hey Warpig from Armageddon Records. As I said, it was the B-side to the song The Nightmare. I don't know why it's the B-side. The Nightmare is okay, but Hey Warpig is, I think, is lots of fun. So we're going to give it a listen, everybody. Uh, and you know what? You got a song called Hey Warpig? It kind of fits in the novelty range, right? I don't know. Maybe it's a protest song. Let's give it a listen, everybody. <laughs> Time. 
Alright, and we're back. That was Kimberly Rue with The Waves and the not-hit song Hey War Pig, which I was thinking about when we were listening to it, is that we could do, we could start a a top five War Pig songs, if we have War Pigs, the Black Sabbath song, mm-hmm. and then Hey War Pig, and I'll just have to find three more songs. I'm sure there's, right. I'm sure there's a numberless amount of songs that uh, say War Pig in them, and I, I'll find them. I'll find them later. Okay, so let's let's move on to your next song. Mare. This is Screaming Jay Hawkins, and the song is Little Demon. Now, this song was the B-side to a rather famous song by Screaming Jay Hawkins, and we'll talk about that when we come back. That's called a cliffhanger, everyone. So let's listen to Little Demon. And I also want you to think about, think on the last episode of this, of uh, our novelty stuff, we played a Holy Motor Rounder song called Hot Corn, Co- Hot Corn, Cold Corn. Yep. So I want you to think about that song as well while you're listening to this. This is Screaming Jay Hawkins, Little Demon. Down in the valley on the foggy hill rock Stood a crazy little demon blowing his top Fire in his eyes and smoke from his head You gotta be real cool to hear the words he said He did Soul for the one he loved, so he had death on his mind. Cause my demon let him go. He gonna run through the world till he understand his pain. Somebody help him get my demon home again. He did He took the two out of the fruit, he had the devil drinking wine Across to the crazy little demon that a woman still a boss Down in the valley on the foggy hill rock You can still hear the demon blowing his top He pushed back night, bought in afternoon He made leap year, jump over the moon Took the 4th of July, he put in May He took this morning, bought back yesterday He did a Okay, and we're back. Mare. Yes. Thoughts on Little Demon? Uh, I thought it was pretty fun. Yeah. Um, it sounded like something that the residents at my work would have liked. Is that right? Maybe. <laughs> I don't know. They might find it a little uh, crazy, but... Uh, yeah, maybe. It's Screamer Jay Hawkins was was kind of crazy. I mean, his stage act was kind of crazy. I think as a person, he was probably sensible and serious. He had a kind of a serious life. When he was 18 months old, he was adopted by Blackfoot Indians. And it doesn't really, that's all it says. So I guess that's all it's known. We don't know if it was a family or the entire tribe just brought him in as like a mascot. Jonah Hex. 
<laughs> he studied classical piano as a child and learned guitar in his 20s, but he joined the U.S. Army with a forged birth certificate at the age of 13 uh, in 1942. He served a, com- in a, served a combat role okay. as well as entertaining troops. Okay. Uh, he was a successful boxer in the Army as well. And uh, he continued boxing when he left the army and joined the Air Force, enlisted in the Air Force in 1944. So the ripe old age of 15, he then got into the Air Force. Okay. Uh, and he was honorably, honorably discharged in 1952. Okay. His plan was to become an opera singer. Okay. But that didn't really work out because black guys, black men singing opera was not a thing in those days. Right. It's much more common now for, for um, people of color to be to be in, to sing in operas. But at that time, not a thing. No, definitely not. Not in the 50s. So he kind of uh, drifted into becoming a blues singer and, mm. and pianist. And then for, Where, you know, doing his own stuff. What's that, sorry? I have a question. Yeah. Where did you find that info about his early life? Uh, Wikipedia. Why? Where did Wikipedia get that information? That he was raised by Blackfoot Indians? Well, just all the like... Raised by Blackfoot Indians. How did he study classical piano? Well, why not? From who? From a teacher. What teacher? Who t- who paid for that? Who taught him? Where I did assume, he study that? I assume he had parents. I just when they say Blackfoot, they just don't know who the name of the people yeah. that, that so. And they're going off of what he said as well. Right. So there's gonna be a certain amount of. And like joining the army when he was twelve. Thirteen. Thirteen and yeah. being a boxer. Yeah. I don't know. I don't know if I believe this this, this whole story. <laughs> well, I assume that. Okay. I'm not saying I don't believe all of it. Yeah. I'm just saying that parts of it seem okay. not wholly I'm, true. I don't want to argue against you, but I'm going to argue against you in the sense okay. that I think that there's going to be biographers of Screaming Jay Hawkins who have investigated his life and have confirmed these stories. That they're not just un, unsubstantiated stories that he, you know, just kind of wild tales that he told. Right. Because that's, you know, as a biographer, you have to kind of like, you know, take take the weed and take the chaff and you have yeah. to like get get to the the kernel of truth that's there and so is that better oh no it's fine but it, um yeah so what are you doing oh it was... <laughs> it's really restless for some reason no it was, it was just the way that you were like had your elbow on it okay on the cd i was kind of worried about it oh okay um yeah so i think you know like i agree with you that there's probably lots of like really crazy stories that he told mm-hmm. and i imagine those have been sort of pruned away over time right because his most famous song, and I said this is the B-side to his most famous song. His yeah. most fam- famous song is I Put a Spell on You. Okay, yep. Which is a really famous song. Yes. Now, apparently, when he recorded the song, he had intended to do it as like a straight, like, you know, a... Uh, a serious song? Yeah, a straight, serious song. He envisioned it like a kind of a refined ballad. Right. But what happened was... Weird. <laughs> who said Romulus? I don't know. That We didn't. Can it read your mind? I was not thinking about Romulus by Sofiane Stevens. <laughs> That's strange. I also have my Siri turned off. Oh, that is weird. I turned my Siri off like five years. I really never used Siri. No, I hate it. Because huh. I used to always turn it on automatic or uh, by accident. Okay. In class. <laughs> not great. Anyway. So I guess when they went to do this the session though, he and his band got really really drunk. Hmm. And so he did this like over the top rendition of the song. Like oh, okay. it's just like a complete mental breakdown of a song and full of, you know, grunting and mm-hmm. screaming and wailing away. And in fact, he was so drunk, he blacked out and had no memory of even doing the song. Oh. He had to when it was time to like actually perform it for concerts, he had to listen to the recorded version again to figure out what he had done. <laughs> and yeah, he was just his whole act was was basically like I think he kind of re- regret, resented, or not resented, but regretted doing it. But, right. you know, you're young and you want to be famous or you want to yeah. make money with your, what you're doing. 
And so like Ellen Freed, who's kind of a very famous early DJ, and actually he was the person who, I don't know if he coined the term rock and roll, but he's the one who applied it to, to the music that rock and roll has become to be described. And But he offered to pay $300 to Screaming Joe Hawkins if before his show, he rose out of a coffin. And of course, this is $300 in 1950s. Yeah. So Screaming Jay Hawkins said, you're on. So later on, he would, you know, he would perform in like leopard print suits. He would have a bone through his nose. He would do a lot of, he would have like a, he had a head on a, on a, like a skull on a stick to carry the stage. I think he called the skull Henry. And, you know, so he had like this big kind of act that took a lot of like kind of cartoony ideas of voodoo and stuff like that. Right. As part of, as part of his thing, as part of his shtick, you know, and that's, you know, he got, he had a long career. With that shtick, so I guess you can't resent it too much. But probably he maybe wished he'd been taken more seriously as an artist. But well, you made the bed and you lie in it sometimes. Yeah. But yeah, it's uh. Now the reason I said to remember the Holy Motor Rounders version, I probably men- mentioned it when we did we played the song originally, was I think in the third verse of the song, uh, Steve uh, Weber sings, "There was a little demons uh, sitting sitting down in the valley going." Hum bum 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 bum. So I think he's re- referencing this song. Oh, okay. Uh, you know, because the uh, earlier verses reference "Long Tall Sally," the Little Richard song. Right. And so I think he was referencing this song, like the kind of crazier songs of of the fifties, which would have been, I think, of most interest to, to people who would form a, a band like the Holy Motor Rounders. Yes, definitely. But uh, yeah, it's a. Uh, I think it's a really fun song. I really like it. It's got some great playing on it too. Like the sax is great, and the guitar solo is fantastic, and it's it's a, it's a fun song. And then it's also pretty kooky. It is. That was fun. All right. Let's move on to your next song, everyone. This is a band that put out a couple of songs you could you might want to call a novelty song. Most significantly, Lazy, Af- Lazy Afternoon. Is that what it's called? Sunday Afternoon? Lazy Afternoon? I can't remember what it's called. <laughs> I should have written it down. Anyway, Lazy Afternoon. Let's call it that. It's a song, you know, it's, it's a very, like, you know, cockney song with a lot of dropped H's in it, you know, and... And with a you know music hall thing to it, and it's it's really really like right up there with novelty songs. But that's not what we're gonna play. We're gonna play a song called "I Feel Much Better," which was the B side to one of the greatest rock songs ever written. Oh, are you gonna tell us what that was now or later? I'm gonna tell you after we come back. Okay. The song is from 1967. Everyone, it's called "I Feel Much Better." It wasn't released on an album in England, but it came out on the first Small Faces immediate album that was released in, in the States. But uh, let's pretend that it's just from a single, and here we go. Yeah. 
All right, and we're back. Mare? Yes? What'd you think of the small faces, and I feel much better? Are there kids singing in this, or does it just sound I like I think kids? it's just them with their voices speeded up, which oh, is okay. why it fell into the novelty category for me. Mm. Just because I like the song, yep. and I'm like, I want to put this song on a mix, right? and here's my chance, Yep. and it fits, kind of fits into it, yep. so what the heck? What'd you think of it? Uh, I thought that the singing was fun. Yeah. I had really good guitar. Mm-hmm. Um, the lyrics were completely nonsensical. <laughs> Yes, I think that was the point. Yeah. Yeah, just for, just for fun. I actually looked up the lyrics, and yes, they're completely nonsensical. <laughs> Tell me some. Uh, easy and lazy we go. It seems so hazy and slow. Shoop, shoop, do weddy, weddy. Long, <laughs> that's, that's a sped up part of the song. Long before the long before we know. Yeah. Shang-a-lang-a-lang-a-delang. <laughs> Times were so high, they were low. Beautiful. That's great. That's great. Yeah, it's a really fun song. So, Mayor, the small faces... Started off as like a, a as like a mod band, like they came out of the mods. You kind of like the Who, you know, like the Who were uh, originally called what were they originally called? Everyone, the Who, the High Numbers, and they put an, an a they put a, a their first single was called "I Am the Face," and a face was like a cool person in mod circles. That was like the slang for like a cool guy, like a real oh, okay. real hip monster, you know, right. someone who had know knew all the Motown songs and and everybody and had the best the sharpest creases in his suits and had the most Rearview mirrors on his Lambretta scooter or his Vespa scooter, and so that was cool. a, that's a face. I want a Vespa with a lot of with a lot of mirrors. On oh, it. it looks fantastic! It sounds really cool. It is fantastic. You should see the cover of uh, Quadrophenia, the yeah. Who album Quadrophenia. So so cool. So um, yep, Mary's got her <laughs> snuck her phone up to take a look. You tell me what you think about it when you see it. So uh, that's why they're called the Small Faces because they were all very small. They're all sh- but uh, very short band but faces were cool people in the in the mod circles but by this point in their career they'd begin to move past their beyond their mod roots um and kind of how that happened was kind of an accident for them they're at a party actually at their own place they're celebrating a party because they all lived in the same house together unlike the beatles who only pretended to live in a house together in the film help the small faces actually all lived together in one house which must have just been a complete insanity but they were throwing a party and brian epstein was there and he gave the band orange slices that were spiked with LSD without telling them, which to me is complete insanity, but was was not uncommon at that time. To that seems spike. terrible, and I'm pretty sure it's legal. <laughs> That's Well, LSD was not illegal at that time to take. No, but I'm pretty sure it's illegal to like Those, drug someone without their knowing. Yeah, I would say so. Uh, but that's how George Harrison and John Lennon at, with and their wives and girlfriends, their first experience on on acid was when they were dosed by a dentist without their knowledge that's terrible yeah be, you know you wouldn't know what was happening to you and then not to be told yeah that's crazy yeah no it's awful um also the this album cover for the who is very cool and i actually do want a vespa like that <laughs> it is great isn't it yeah i always wanted one when i was a teenager but i had no money and no prospects of getting money so it was just a dream all the dream also i find most motorcycles kind of scary yeah also a vespa in i mean it's, it rains a lot here. Yeah, it wouldn't people, be that great here, yeah. Maybe people ride bikes and motorcycles here, but people don't really ride their motorcycles in the rain, you know? No, they don't tend to ride in the summer. They tend to ride... Or, it's, I mean, they don't tend to ride in the winter. They tend to, yeah. to park in the winter and this ride in the summer. And, like, people ride bikes in, like, year-round, but you're going much slower on a bike. Mm-hmm. So it's not hitting you. The, like, the rain's not hitting you the same <laughs> way, you know? Yeah, yeah. But then you're a mod, so you're wearing, like, one of those big uh, green army parkas that they, they like to wear, the mods like to wear. They like to wear bowling shoes. Okay. This is the new, this is like the mod, like I knew mods, the kind of mod revival of the, of the 
late 70s early 80s like the, basically centered around the, the group the jam so they had like these green anoraks or parkas they're called like they're like army ex, you know like army um what do you call it surplus and then they were bowling shoes and then of course ne- very narrow very narrow pants in fact you if you could you'd get your mom to take them in even more <laughs> and in the film quadrophenia which is based on, on the, al- the album by the who the kid in the the kind of lead character kid there's he like sits in the bathtub in his jeans and then gets out and then so they dry like even tighter to his skin oh, yeah. so then they're just like super tight yeah things you do as a teenager <laughs> but the but the um, small faces partly through this experience you know kind of opened their eyes to, to different things and they started to like grow beyond you know just being mods and so they started to explore then also they were in conflict in 1966 with their manager whose name was Don Arden who is kind of kind of the He's sort of the model of all bad bully boy managers that you would ever watch in a movie or whatever. Like, apparently he he actually held someone, suspended someone by their ankles from a balcony Yikes. in order to make them sign over something to him. Oh, my God. So he was almost like more like a gangster than he was a manager. And actually, his daughter is married to Ozzy Osbourne. Sharon Osbourne is that. She's Sharon Arden. She is Don Arden's daughter. Oh wow! She was like, that's why she managed Ozzy for a long time because she came out of like a management background. Right. I don't know if she actually suspended anyone by their ankles. Besides Ozzy, I think he was hung by his ankles <laughs> at some point. Yeah, and then they're so they're having a fight with Don Arden, and then they're also in conflict with the record company Decca Records because Decca, well, so two things were were at issue. One was they were seeing no royalties, so they're doing well. They're playing a lot of shows. They're selling a lot of albums. They had they had number one songs, but they weren't getting any royalties. And then Decca released a single, My Mind's Eye, without consulting the band, which they thought was was uh, poor cricket, as it were. And so they they left Arden and Decca and were quickly signed to Immediate Records, which was the new record label started by the ex-manager of the Rolling Stones, Andrew Logue Oldham. They started playing for, they, you know, almost right away. And then once they started uh, doing stuff for, for Immediate, it, it their... their the interest level of their songs increases amazingly. It's rather than the kind of, I think, sort of routine songs that they were performing before they, they went to Immediate, their first album and, and stuff. It's, it's okay, but it's it's not as good as, as this song, which, as I said, the A-side to this single is one of the greatest rock songs ever written, and that is Tin Soldier by The Small Faces. I'm not mm. going to play it now, Mary, okay. for you, but if you want, I'll play it for you later. Okay. Because it is a it's an amazing song. But I have a lot of songs I want to play today, so and I'm sure that everyone else, everyone else out there has heard the song who's listening to this show. Because if you, I'm sure you, I'm sure you've come to the show via completely Beatles, Sneaky Dragon, and so you, you know this stuff, you know your stuff. I know that I can play some obscure tracks, but there's no need for me to play Tin Soldier by Small Small Faces. <laughs> but believe me when I say, Mary, it is one of the great songs of all time. I believe you. Okay, let's go to the next song, dear. Okay, what is it? This is the Ombres. The Ombres. The Ombres, with their song, Let It Out, Let It All Hang Out, that came out in 1967 as well. It's two songs from 1967, Mary. Look at that. Wow. Two in a row. Wow. I did do a lot of 60 songs in this mix, I noticed, as I was listening to it. Hmm. I don't think I consciously did that, but maybe I'd, I'd put all these songs in reserve, and then I just ended up with like a lot of the same sort of period for one, right. <laughs> one mixtape, but oh well, that's all right. Uh, so here we go. This is The Ombres, everyone, with uh, Let It Out, Let It All Hang Out. I preach, my dear friends, you're about to receive on John Barleycorn, Nicotine, and the Temptations of Eve. No parking by the sewer sign, hot 
dog, my razor broke, water dripping up the spout, but I don't care, let it all hang out. Hanging from a pine tree by my knees, sunshine through the shade, nobody knows what it's all about, it's too much man, let it all hang out. Walking upside down, my TV's on the blink Made Galileo look like a boy scout Sorry about that, let it all hang out Sleep all day, drive all night Brain my numb, can't stop now For sure ain't no doubt Keep open mind, let it all hang out Big brown moon, how does that mess your baby up leg? Eating a Reuben sandwich with sauerkraut. Don't stop now, baby, let it all hang out. 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 Alright, and we're back. And Mare. Yes. What did you think of the hombres? Let it out. Let it all hang out. I thought it was pretty fun. Yeah. Uh, I liked the guitar. Yes. That is a good good bit. Mm-hmm. That's a good bit. Apparently it was called, it was originally titled as Let It Out because the record label thought Let It All Hang Out was too risque. Right. And then when they didn't get any, it didn't get any beef for it, they just, they added it to the, uh, to the single in brackets. So people could, when people went, I'm looking for the song, it's, it says Let It All Hang Out. And then the, the record store clerk goes, do you mean this one? And they go, Yes. <laughs> So the band was formed in Memphis, Tennessee in 1966 with Jerry Lee Masters, who was a bass player, uh, the guitarist Gary Wayne McEwen, the singer and keyboard player B.B. Cunningham Jr., and drummer John Will Hunter. And the band was originally formed to be a stand-in for a band that didn't exist. So there's a band called Ronnie and the Daytonas, which had a hit out called Little GTO, but there was no band. It was just a right. session musicians and a school-age singer whose name was Bucky Wilkins. Bucky Wilkins. Bucky Wilkins. And Bucky's mom would not let him go on tour. So... The, That's fair. Yeah. So the he was, so the uh, agent, manager, you know, threw together a bunch of guys who were already in a different group mm-hmm. and said, hey, you guys are now Ronnie and the Daytonas. And they're like, who's Ronnie? And they he said, I don't care. Anyone can be Ronnie. It doesn't matter. <laughs> so they said they never introduced themselves because none of them wanted to be Ronnie. Right. They would only admit to it if someone actually asked mm. who that might be. And then they would just take turns being Ronnie. <laughs> why did none of them want to be Ronnie? I don't know. I guess because... I don't know why. I guess mm. they just don't want the attention. I think they were kind of embarrassed and felt like a bunch of phonies doing That's this. That's fair. Well, because it wasn't their song. It wasn't their song. It wasn't their band. They were just... Yeah, they were just, you know, making money. Yeah. Which is honest, but it's kind of dishonest to pretend that you're a band that doesn't exist. But that yeah. happened quite a bit in rock music. I mean, that's yeah. the history of bubblegum <laughs> bubblegum music right there. Mm-hmm. So so eventually, of course, Bucky Wilkins stops wanting to sing. The hits dry up. The interest goes down. And no one wants to see Ronnie the Daytonas anymore. So they're kind of at loose ends. But they still, want, they still wanted to be in a band together. So they just kind of took a residency at a small 
nightclub in west of Memphis, Arkansas. And then they would just kind of use that as their home base, and they would go from there and do little tours. Wait a second. Yeah. Were they from Memphis, Tennessee originally? They are from Memphis, Tennessee originally. And then they moved to Memphis, Arkansas. West of Memphis, Arkansas. Okay. There's, that's the distinction there. That's all my questions. Okay. So, are you sure? Yep. No more I'm questions good. for the rest of the show? Uh, cannot promise that. Okay. It's so all my questions about uh, about Memphis. <laughs> Memphis and West Memphis? Yes. So, so, on one of those tours out of town, they were in Texas, and the band was invited by this kind of well-known producer whose name is Huey P. Moe, M-E-A-U-X, uh, to record at his studio in Pasadena, Texas. So, yes, Mary, we have Memphis, yep. Tennessee. Uh-huh. West Memphis, Arkansas. Mm-hmm. Then we have Pasadena, Texas, as well as Pasadena, California. Right. So Mo, better known as the Crazy Cajun at the time, uh, produced a lot of different artists. He produced like B.J. Thomas. Was he actually Cajun or was that just a name? Yeah, he was Cajun, yeah. Mo was obviously a French last name. Okay. He was from Louisiana originally. Cool. He produced Barbara Lynn and he also produced the Sir Douglas Quintet, which mm. I'm really impressed with. They're great. So what happened was that he said, you know what, like, hey, you guys want to come down and do some recordings? And they had no songs. Right. So the night before the, their their thing, they're like, well, we got to think of a song, guys. So they thought, well, let's do like kind of a Dylan parody. Right. That's where it started. And then so they thought, well, just because we, we just be nonsensical. We don't have to have any sense to the song. It could be like a lot of nons- nonsense phrases. Just like Dylan. Just like Dylan. Exactly. And so. I mean, the- he has a song about how he got stuck in oatmeal. <laughs> the song is stuck in Mobile. I about Mobile, Alabama. Don't know about that. Not uh-huh. Mobile, Oregon. Uh-huh. Mobile, Alabama. Okay. But yeah, he uh, didn't wasn't stuck in oatmeal. Okay. Although I did, I don't believe you, but okay. Although the train guy did uh, smoke his eyelid and punch his cigarette. So. <laughs> so you yeah. never know. I can't, I can't argue can't really argue against Eddie that he's stuck in oatmeal. So the two guys are in their 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 hotel room. And they're like, okay, we got to think of a song or motel room. And then the other guy's like, okay, what are we gonna do? And he's like, I I don't know. Like just give me a line. Give me any kind of line you can think of. And he's like, can't park by a sewer sign. What does that mean? Have well, you ever noticed? There's never any signs like where a sewer is. Like they won't let you park near a fire hydrant. Uh-huh. But there's never a sign saying you can't park by a, a sewer sign. The guy goes, that's true. That's a good first line. <laughs> Wrote it down. He's like, well, I need something else. I think that there's a reason for that. <laughs> well, there's nothing. There's nothing. There's no reason you couldn't park by the sewer. I know. Well, maybe someone needs access to it, though. And now you're parked in for front of what? it. For what? Because they're a teenage teenage mutant <laughs> yeah. ninja turtle, and they or need to get back home. They need to be ab- 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 abducted by a clown. Okay, yeah. You know, these are all good reasons to block lot, the sewer access. There's a lot. There's a lot of reasons <laughs> for the sewer, Mary. Chuds, right? Again, a good reason to block the sewer entrance. Okay. So, so then he's like, "Okay, we need the line. What do, you, what do you got? What do you got here?" And then the guy was he was in the bathroom and he's shaving, and his, his razor actually broke. Okay. He's like, "Hot dog, my razor broke. That's good." <laughs> Wrote that down. Is this is this also how Prepeb Sprout writes their lyrics? <laughs> <laughs> That's not funny, Mary. Um, Hot dog, jumping frog, Albuquerque. <laughs> That's Albuquerque, New Mexico, not Albuquerque, Wisconsin. Mm, I'm pretty sure it's Have a Cookie. I believe you got that from a TV show. <laughs> Perhaps. <laughs> So yeah, so they got they kind of got far away, and then so the next day they went into the studio, and then the, the two musicians, musicians were there, and they're like, "Hey, we need some more lines for this song." And so everyone was kind of throwing stuff in, mm-hmm. including Maid Galileo looked like a Boy Scout, which apparently is a line from a, a Southern comedian whose name was Brother Dave Gardner. Okay, and that was one of a line from one of his bits. Right. And then uh, the speech at the beginning of the song 
which was performed by the drummer, John Hunter, he just kind of said, oh, I'm just going to say this at the beginning. And everyone's like, what is it? And, you know, where he says, uh, you know, a preachman, dear friends, you're about to receive on John Barleycorn, Nicotine, and the Temptations of Eve, which apparently comes from a song by a band, by a band called Red Ingle and his something or others. Hmm. Cigarettes, Wusky, and Wild Wild Women. Mm-hmm. Uh, the keyboardist B.B. Cunningham, after he said this, blew the raspberry and then played the off, like the weird, you know, kind of the dissonant right. chord on his thing as sort of like a, a finish. And then they kicked into the song. Yeah. And once again, they had no idea what they were doing because they hadn't written the song yet. Right. So the guitar player just started strumming this this song. He thought, oh, this sounds pretty good. So he just started strumming it. And then the singer, the B.B. Uh, Cunningham, was like, well, what am I supposed to sing? Yeah. Like, what? There's no tune. And he's like, yeah. well, just kind of speak it because it's like we're doing like a Bob Dylan thing. So you don't right. have to like. So that was kind of like the whole the whole hmm. spirit of the of the of the uh, song. I'm into it. I like it. I think it worked out for them. Yeah, it's a lot of fun. In fact, here's the thing. So after the recording session, they go back to their their jobs. They go back to their working in the nightclub, and Mo uh, shops a single around. In fact, when they left, they didn't even have a name. They weren't called the Hombres. They had no name. It right. Was, it was Mo who named them the Hombres. And so he goes around. He shops a single around Nashville and managed to get some interest from MGM Records, who. Uh, maybe wanted to distance themselves from this crude nonsense, didn't put it out on MGM Records, put it out on their Verve. Uh, well, it originally was called Verve Folkways. Okay. It was supposed to be like a folk label. It was put right. together by Moses Ash, who's like a well-known New York folk, folky. They wanted to kind of bro- bro- uh, broaden the appeal of the label, so they changed it to Verve Forecast. Right. This is sort of the future. And so, so yeah, so it came out on that label, and this was totally unknown to the band. They're performing back in West Memphis at their club, and they're they're over in Arkansas. They're in Arkansas, not in Texas. And yeah, this guy just came in one day and he goes, "Hey, your song's all over the radio." Huh. They're like, "What?" Goes, "Yeah, like it's a big deal." And so they went and checked it out. So then they were smart. They acted right away and they 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 secured the publishing hmm. and the copyright on it uh, and beat uh, Mo to the to the punch. And he was apparently really upset because he wanted to take the publishing for the song. Oh, really? Because that's where the money is. Right. But they got it. And in a weird bit of synchronicity, Mary. In Memphis, Tennessee, on the station WLS, the Box Tops, another Memphis band, were number one in the charts with the letter. The Ombres were number two in the charts with Let It All Hang Out. The Box Tops had a musician in the band whose name was... Wait. Hmm? I know this. Okay. B.J. Thomas? No. Oh. Uh, Bill Cunningham. Oh. Who was the brother of B.B. Cunningham, the keyboard player in oh, the Ombres. Okay. So it's sort of a one-two punch. Right. Yes, the uh, box office is the band that Alex Chilton sang. Oh, before. Alex Chilton. Yeah, so there you go. Interestingly, Bob Hunter, mm-hmm. or both Hunter, sorry, both Hunter and Cunningham uh, were killed by, by uh, uh, killed in gun violence. Oh, weird. Hunter killed himself, but um, Cunningham was killed in a, in a robbery when he was working as a security guard in, in Memphis, which I thought was weird because McEwen uh, served many years as a deputy sheriff before becoming a Baptist minister, and he was never killed by a so there you go. Hmm. Some jobs are safer than others, I guess. I d- wouldn't believe it would be a policeman, but there you go. I just thought it'd be fun right now, since we're playing, since we're playing, since we're playing novelty songs. I thought it'd be fun to listen to Nicotine, Wusky, and Wild Wild Women. This is from 1948, and it's Red Ingle, and it's somethings. I can't remember what they were. I'll tell you when we come back, because I forgot to write this down, but I'm still going to play it. So here we go, everyone. This is, uh, like I said, Nicotine, spelled W-E-N, Wusky, and Wild Wild Women. Here we go. A preachment, dear friends, you're about to receive on John Barleycorn, Nicotine, and the Temptations of Eve. Okay, that's it, if it's so good. <gasps> oh, once I was happy and had a good wife. <gasps> 
I had enough money to last me for life. I met with a gal and we went on a spree. She taught me to smoke and drink whiskey, cigarettes and whiskey and wild wild Will you please? Cigarettes is a blight on the whole human race. A man is a monkey with one in his face. Here's my definition, believe me, dear brother. A fire on one and a fool on the other. Cigarettes and whiskey and wild, wild women. And love you crazy, they'll drive you Somebody get that bum out of here. Brother, repent or they'll write on your grave. Two women in whiskey, here lies a poor slave. Take warning, dear stranger, take warning, dear friend. They'll write in big letters these words at the end. Cigarettes and whiskey and wild, wild women. Hold, hold it, bro hold it, brother. My friend, I'm afraid you're in the wrong place. We don't sing that kind of music here. Okay, then show us your muscles. <laughs> All right, and we're back. And Mary, did you enjoy that little little novelty number from the old days? Yeah, it was fun. That was Red Ingle and and the Natural Seven was the name of his band. And the reason I couldn't remember is because Red Ingle seemed to change the name of his band every time he put out a new record. So that was that was them though. That was some fun. Get that bum out of here. <laughs> Good line. All right, you ready for our next novelty song, Mary? Yes. You ready to novelty it up? Yes. Are you ready for something novel? Sure. Okay. Let's listen. Actually, yeah. I changed my mind. You don't want to hear anything? Nope, I'm, I'm good. Can we end the podcast now? <laughs> well, if you want, I guess that's All it. right, well, if you want to reach us, you can... <laughs> so if you, folks want to reach us, Mary, where, how can they do that? I'm just joking, Dad. Oh. We can listen to the next song. <laughs> okay. All right. Mary was lying to me. As you can see, I'm a sucker for my daughter. Let's listen to 10CC. Okay. This is Donna. Uh, it came out as a single... They came out as on an album too, but let's say let's talk about the single. It came out as a single on UK Records in 1972, backed with the song "Hot Sun Rock." But we're gonna listen to Donna, everyone. Here we go.
Did you have some thoughts about this song? I know that you hate this song. I'm just, what? I'm just kidding. I like this song. I know you do. It's a fun song. It is fun. I like it. It's a very fun song. It's uh, It's been sort of a family song. We've listened to this, that song for a long time. Yes. <laughs> you know what? I'm going to do a little mini documentary today, everybody, about the beginnings of 10CC. We've already talked about the beginnings of 10CC. No, we haven't. We talked about 10CC already. What, what do we talk about? Um. What song do we do? Uh... We did another song. I know we did because you talked about how they became more popular because of that song on Deceptive Bends. Are you thinking of the one before that one? The I, I'm in, um, not in love or whatever. I'm not in love. That song. The things we do for love. Well, things we do for love is a popular song for sure. You but. said that they became really popular because of that one, and but they did more novelty ones before that or something. I don't remember talking about them. I'm pretty sure we talked about them. I don't remember playing a song. A- did I play The Things We Do for Love on this? On this? I don't think so. I don't think I talked about them. I remember talking about Deceptive Benz, but I was talking about the Pink Floyd song they did on there. The Pink Floyd kind of styled song okay. they did. But I do remember that you said that... Because um, it, I'm Not In Love is a song that really bro- put them into the stratosphere. Oh, okay. That was a song that broke them in like in, in North America and right. places like that. Yeah, that was but then, yeah, hit. you said that the, the band was like conflicted after that because mm. um, because the main songwriter wanted to keep doing more novelty songs and the rest of the band wanted to do more serious stuff because they had a hit and they were like let's be more serious now because we can capitalize on this and he was like i just want to do what i want to do and they were like i don't know well I, that's not actually how it went what's interesting yeah i don't know i'm not too sure where you're you're going here but let me talk about 10cc Mary. okay because yeah i'm just gonna talk about them if i've talked about before i'm sorry but we're gonna listen to some other music by them i just think i find their their beginnings really fascinating so 10cc was formed in Stockport, which is part of a town, which is a town that's kind of part of Manchester. The group was from Manchester. The people who were in the group were from Manchester. And growing up, three of the members knew each other. So Kevin Godley, Lol Cream, and Graham Gouldman all knew each other. Some from school, some from outside activities from school. And the three of them played in various permutations of local bands when they were growing up. Now, Gouldman probably became the most successful the soonest because he, not as a musician, but as a songwriter. Right. So he became a like a really sought-after songwriter in the 60s. He wrote, well, three big hits for the Yardbirds. Most importantly, Heart Full of Soul and For Your Love, the song that made Eric Clapton quit the Yardbirds. Uh, no Milk Today, East West, and Listen People for Herman's Hermits. And then another great song, um, 
not bus stop bus stop's great but his one of his greatest songs i think one of the great songs of the 60s look through any window for the hollies so goldman started writing became sort of an in-house writer for giorgio gamelski's marmalade label and so he invited godly and cream to a session one time because you know just to play on the session it was like a demo session and but gamelski was super impressed by godly's falsetto and he offered them a uh, a recording contract right there and he wanted to make them into kind of like a S- simon and garfunkel right lowell cream and kevin godley can't resist a joke so their idea of like a great name for a simon and garfunkel duo was uh frab joy and runcible spoon is what they call themselves <laughs> which is kind of a nod kind of a nod to lewis carroll i think frabjus is a frabjus day to lou to lay is from uh hunting of the snark as well as runcible Spoon, I believe, is also one of the nonsense words used in that great poem. They actually recorded their basic tracks at Strawberry Studios, which was a studio in in Manchester in Stockport. And the song was I'm Beside Myself, which... So it features Lowell Cream, Kevin Godley, Mm -hmm. Graham Gouldman on bass, and Eric Stewart on guitar. With uh, arrangements, and and the uh, orchestra was conducted by Tony Meehan, who was originally been the drummer in The Shadows, which is the really famous kind of early 60s group, mostly instrumental group. But let's give a listen to I'm Beside Myself. This is by Frabjoy and Runcible Spoon. Here we go, everyone. The sun is high above my head It casts the shadow of myself upon my bed Where will I sleep, where will I lie, where will I rest my weary head My eyes are heavy, I cannot see Somebody's talking but not to me Go. He said, deliver 
So, uh, like I was saying, Eric Stewart uh, played played um, guitar on that on that song, and now he was also a separately a success. So, unlike Graham Goldman, though, he was successful as a, as a musician. He was in a group called Wayne Fontana and the Mindbenders. And when Wayne Fontana left, the mind they just became the Mindbenders, and Eric Stewart became the lead singer as well as the kind of lead guitar player. And they had a big hit with a song called "Groovy Kind of Love," which was a really big hit. And so. He took that money and he invested it in the studio, in Strawberry Studios in Stockport, because he wanted to learn how to become a recording engineer. And so he just kind of, by investing in the studio, it gave him like an opportunity and a place to, to learn the craft. And Goldman also became a partner in the studio as well. So both of them had, a, had an interest in the studio. And then the original owner of it decided to sell. And so they bought, they bought the studio outright. So they owned Strawberry Studios. Cool. And so basically it became this place where they could just... That wasn't the original name of it. It was originally... It had a different name. I can't remember what it was now. I maybe should have written it down if I was... But anyway, they changed it to Strawberry Studios in because they were big fans of Strawberry Fields Forever, of course, just like everyone else in the 60s. They were, you know, big beetle heads. So, yeah. of, course, of course, they wanted to have something that would remind people of that. So they started using the studio as a place to kind of rehearse and record and test out ideas and stuff like that mm-hmm. because they just owned it. They could just do whatever they want. They could back up the tape and just re-record again or do whatever they wanted. Uh, Goldman, however, was approached by Kaznets and Cats, the head honchos of the bubblegum scene right you know uh you know the kind of uh, super k productions as so they approached him and they wanted him to write some songs for them so he started writing songs he got onto the bubblegum assembly line mm-hmm. which i don't think he quite realized what he was step- letting himself in for which was just a lot of work because they had they had really high expectations of basically you had to do a song a week that's what they wanted from you right so you wow. just had to keep pr- pumping up the songs yeah and so he just used you know Goldman. Cream and Godly as his backing group, not Goldman, sorry, uh, Stuart Cream and Godly as his backing group, and would just write, record, produce songs, and then send them to to Kaznets the Cats, and they would just release them under any particular name they felt like. And so one of the songs he did was a song called Sausalito, uh, which came out as an Ohio Express song, but in actual, in reality, it's basically just 10cc before they were 10cc. Right. And so let's give that song a listen, everybody. This is uh, Sausalito. That's not the full title of it. Once again... I just wrote play song. <laughs> oh, I must have written this down somewhere. Let me just look ahead of my notes, because I'm pretty sure I did. I'm sorry. Sausalito is the place to go, which came out on Buddha Records in 1969. The B-side was Make Love, Not War, but he had nothing to do with that. I think it was just a corny a corny attempt to cash in on, on the, the t- times right. by uh, Super K Productions. But this is Sausalito, whatever it's called. Okay, let's give it a listen, everyone. Like in a movie, Sausalito is the place to go 
All right, and we're back. I think uh, 10CC had heard Joe South's Games People play by that point with that kind of sitar slash guitar sound that uh, that song made popular. And they're like, we can ride that wave too. <laughs> so Gouldman was uh, called to America by Kazanis and Cat, so he had to leave for a while. So that left the band to kind of mess around in the studio in his absence. And while messing around one day, they were testing drum layering on the new mixing mixing desk. Godly Cream and Stewart wrote this song together called Neanderthal Man, which they released under the name Hot Legs. And the song reached number two in the charts. It became like this weird hit. And it's just, I'm not going to play it because I don't think it's a great song, but it's just a weird thing. It's just like a fluke novelty hit and everyone loved it. And um, what's weird though is the group didn't cash in on this fluke and opted instead to release their own recording of one of Gouldman's bubblegum creations, Umbopo, which came out on Buddha Records as by Crazy Elephant. Hmm. They released it as uh, Dr. Father. That's the name they gave the band, which I think is a great name for a band, but it didn't chart. So rather than do it by as by Hot Legs, which everyone knew from Neanderthal Man, they did it by Dr. Father. Right. So then, no one knew. Which no one knew, of course. So then they returned to the Hot Legs name, and they released an album called Thinks School Stinks, which I think is either a reference to... Ronald Searle's uh, Molesworth, which is like these books came out in the 60s, I think of 60s or 50s, which are like the diaries of this student at a, pu- at a private school or public school in England. They're really quite good. And they have great drawings by Ronald Searle in them. Or to the goon show with uh, Blue Bottle, who would often say things like, hmm, thanks. Let me know something like that, right? Uh, so anyway, Think School's Things was not a success. Once again, because they didn't do it like they were hot legs of Neanderthal Man, they just did it as like a, a record. Some random band they, yeah, that no one's never heard of. They just did like all the songs that they, you know, that they had written at the time and just put it out that way. And so that didn't really work out. Gouldman returned and then the band was hired to back up the singer named Neil Sedaka. He had a lot of hit songs in the 60s and then he kind of faded out and he was like kind of tr- trying to find a comeback. And so he went to England and hired 10CC to back him up and produce him and everything. And so they did two albums with him, one called Solitaire and the other called The Tra-La-La Days Are Over. And actually these songs kind of resulted in this revival of Neil Sedaka's career. But the success of the albums kind of was a was a bit of a cold shower for the rest of the group because they realized we're just giving away our talents and we're not really getting anything for it. We're just getting like a flat fee for this album. Yeah. Neil, uh. Neil Sedaki's making tons of money. So they thought, well, let's get serious. So what did they do? Did they turn turn back to the Hot Legs name? No. They released a new single as a group called Festival. The song was called Today, and unfortunately that song didn't chart either. But I'm going to play it. It's a wonderful song. I can see why it didn't chart, because it does kind of like lose its way part partway through the song. But it's just so fantastic in the beginning of it. So you got to hear it, because I'm sure people out there have not heard Festival by or heard Today by the group Festival, or even knew that Festival was 10cc, but it was. And let's give it a listen, everyone. Thank you. 
was uh, Today by Festival, a.k.a. 10cc. Like I said, that song did not chart either, and I can kind of understand why, because I do think that the, the center of the song gets a bit soft, and maybe that's a price you pay for producing yourself, is there's not a there's not an outside voice there who kind of says, you know what, maybe we don't need this long a bridge. Let's cut this down a little bit and mm-hmm. keep, keep to the main melody. But, you know, whatever, that's part of the 10cc sound, is that kind of, like, indulgent... Uh, kind of wayward way they they have of of putting their songs together, <laughs> and of course the the benefit of recording in your own studio where you could just have unlimited studio time. It doesn't matter what you're doing is you can do those great stacked vocals that they had, like just that mass vocal sound is just fantastic. This song is almost like 
like if you listen to the vocals to that song, it's almost like pointing the way towards I'm Not In Love, which where they had no instrument instrumentation in that song at all. It's just beds of voices that are played like it's uh, a symphony. So it's acapella? It's, yeah, I think basically it's acapella and it's just, but it's all just voices <laughs> singing the, and I think that they, they synthesize it in some way so that they could like, uh, you know, use the voices, you know, they obviously didn't have like, they didn't have uh, samplers, so they couldn't like sample the sound, but they just, they did it in such a way that they could, they could call the voices, uh, you know, uh, these sort of stacked sounds and, and create like this, this almost like organ of voices. So anyway, now they offered the song Waterfall to Apple Records, but we're told it wasn't commercial enough. So then they thought they had this other song called Donna and they thought, well, this song is really good, but who can we get to, to put it out for us? So they thought they had, they knew someone named Jonathan King, who was like a BBC DJ and also had, was a singer and stuff like that. He sang a song, Everyone's Gone to the Moon. He had like a small record label called UK Records. And so they approached him and he was like, oh yeah, this is great. I'll put it out for sure. And so um, they needed a name though. And so they weren't sure what they're going to call themselves. And he, and he, he dreamed that night, he had this dream where he, he dreamt that he saw a movie theater um, marquee that said 10cc, the best band in the world. Who's he? Sorry. Jonathan King. Okay. And so, uh, so he, he named the band 10cc. It's often been rumored, however, and the band have, have also said this is true, that 10cc as a measurement is apparently the amount of semen that the average male produces. So that was the other reason. But I, I think that's weird reason for call a band anything. But anyway. Yeah. yeah so they wrote this don't song. like that very much. Yeah. Who would? And uh, yeah. But the song was a big hit. And 10CC never looked back. Until they broke up later on. Right. But not because of novelty, novelty songs. But just because uh, Godly and Cream were more experimental in their outlook. Whereas Stuart and Goldman were more kind of like, you know, straight ahead pop sync pop writers singers you know and yeah. that's that's what they appreciated and so uh godly and cream wanted to they invented they had invented this little uh, device i can't remember the name of it now but it was it worked in a way that would create a constant chord on a guitar so you could almost use a guitar as, to replace strings on, on an album because it had these little wheels on it that would depress on the strings and would it would create like tones cool and so they wanted to do make an album that would kind of showcase this and and where they're heading, Stewart and Gloomin weren't that interested. And so Godly and Cream ended up leaving the band and doing this three-album set called Consequences, which in no way was a success. But that's what they wanted to do, and so they did it. And, yeah, it's too bad. It's too bad that, you know, there, it's that problem of that time period where no one could think in terms of... Only everyone was thinking absolutes. No one thought in terms of, like, yeah, you guys go do that for a while, and then when you get that out of your system, come back and we'll do an album together proper as a band. But instead, it was just like, oh, if you want to leave, just leave. It's over. We're done. You know, like, okay. Geez. Well, I mean, that's not necessarily just thinking in ab- absolutes. I think that's just people. <laughs> I guess you know? so. People thinking absolutes. That's what you're saying. Well, no, I'm just, it's just like, you know, it's not about, it's not about logic. It's about feelings. Yeah. Okay. Right? It's like, oh, what? Like, you don't think you need me? I don't need you. <laughs> that could be it, too. What sort of awkward was that Eric Stewart and I think Kevin Godley were, or maybe it was Lil Cream, one of the two were connected by marriage. So one was married to the other one's sister. Oh, yeah, that is awkward. <laughs> so they, no matter where they were in their careers, they always always were in contact with each other. All right, let's move on to your next song, everyone. I hope you enjoyed that little bit of a 10cc documentary. Did you, did you enjoy that, Mary? Yeah, it was fine. Okay, it was fine? Yep. I mean, do you think it was fun? Yeah, it was fun. That's what you meant to say, right? No. It was fine. Yep, that's what I meant to say. Oh, well, that was fun. Because you don't really hear those kind of songs very much. And I think it's a sort of interesting... 
that a band would have so many different alter egos, you know? Yeah, that was interesting. Yeah. Oh, there you go. So it was fun. I like to hear the songs. Yeah. All right. Let's move on to your next group, Mare. Okay. This is the Hollywood Jills with He Makes Me So Mad that came out on Toon Kell Records in 1968. So let's give it a listen. Do you have some thoughts about this song? I do. One is off. Um, I like the song. Yeah. It's very familiar. It is? Yeah. Was it on another mix or something? I don't think so. Oh. Sounds very, very familiar. Did I put it on two mixes? I don't know. What was it called? He Makes Me So Mad? Or He Makes Me Mad? It has called different things, depending who you ask. But I don't think so. I don't think we've played it before. Have I? If I have, I apologize, everybody. Mary may be confusing it with the song about... The boy, the boyfriend that the 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 dreamy song where they're like, I played last time. I can't remember who did it now, but it was where uh, the I have to look through back through my notes. But where the um the singer is like daydreaming because she's in love with this guy. Is that the one you're thinking about? I don't know. Okay. I just thought it sounded really familiar. Hmm. Yeah, I like the song. It's very simple. Like the horns and stuff like that are just as simple as simple can be. But I love the uh, the the interplay between the singers. You know, where she's like, you know, it tells everyone I sw- I swim in the raw. Well, don't you? <laughs> it's great. And uh, what's the other one? He um, he smiles when I get mad. When I slap his face, he smiles or whatever. And this, this weird things like that. It's just like a weird... Uh, her list of complaints is rather odd, is what I'm saying. Hmm. But I, I enjoyed it. Uh, so the 
Hollywood Jills were, of course, didn't exist, really. Right. They're just a thrown-together entity. Uh, they were the brainchild of this guy who was a record producer, promoter. His name was Saxton Carey. Uh, real name, Isaac. Sounds like a fake name. Yes, real name, Isaac Columbus Toombs. That also sounds like a fake name. But he ran kind of a music factory in New Orleans that pumped out whatever music struck his fancy or whatever would seem popular. It didn't matter. Funk, pop, marching bands. He didn't care. And marching bands were very popular. And New Orleans, dear, just so you know. Hmm. Because they have the Mardi Gras, and so oh. they have all those marching bands that are okay. part of that. So I know that seems weird that you could be producing marching bands, but they're, they're really popular. He was born, I think he was born in Ohio, hence the Columbus, but he ran away from home at the age of nine and performed in vaudeville. And well, in vaudeville, learned to play the piano, guitar, and a variety of reed instruments. And actually, while he was living in Gary, Indiana, he got the opportunity to fill in for the the jazz great Charlie Christian on guitar. So he's a pretty good player if he's filling in for for, for uh, Charlie Christian. This is our second barely believable <laughs> life story that we've had. In 1945, he formed his own 18-piece touring band, uh, then settled in Detroit, and he, there he recorded for Imperial Records, enjoying a hit called Daughter, That's Your Red Wagon, which was an answer song to Ruth Brown's Mama, He Treats Your Daughter Mean. He then worked with in Houston, with his promoter named Don Roby, uh, he produced the early uh, singles for um, some early recordings for Della Reese in Detroit. He recorded novelty records under his own name and wrote and produced for other musicians on Checker and VJ Records. He produced a single, You're So Fine, by the Falcons. And I bring that up because we've mentioned them before because um, they were kind of a seminal group that had like a lot of different musicians in them, like with Wilson Pickett and Eddie Floyd and people like that. So, yeah, pretty pretty seminal group that you know on their own aren't really well known but just who who moved through that group was pretty amazing so in the 1960s uh carrie moved to new orleans where he set up a recording studio worked as an a&r man and producer for alan toussaint and yeah and just put together you know whatever project to sort of it's you know just whatever kind of um whatever his fancy whatever that idiom is i can't remember for some reason now. tickled his fancy the hollywood jills featured francine king who cut her own answer record a song called um, it was an answer record to the song I Heard It Through the Grapevine called The Grapevine Can't Tell You. <laughs> and um, so Carrie released a song on his own record label called Keltoon Records, but then Capital licensed it. And they actually moved He Makes Me So Mad or He Makes Me Mad from the B-side to the A-side. And because uh, I think it is much better than the, than, the B, than the actual A-side, which was a song called, uh, which was called, which was a song called A Good Thing Baby. So there we go. There we go. All right. So one of my, one of the principles I follow when I'm putting together mixtapes is to try and have as many various things as possible, even with yes. novelty songs. I know. I want to have art rock. I want to have, I want to have, you know, pop. I want to have R&B. I want to have jazz if I can figure it, figure it in. I just want whatever, country music, whatever I can do to make it work. So, so saying that, let's move on to our next song, everyone. This is Matching Mole. The song is called Signed Curtain. Came out in 1972. Once again, same year as Donna. Really circling around some years here. <laughs> All right. Let's give it a listen, everyone. This is the first, first 
thoughts about what mary's gonna say about this song but let's just listen to what mary has to say this is uh mary's thoughts on matching mole sign curtain so before you start mary yes just gonna put a little song here oh mary what did you think about sign curtain by matching mole i'd like to know your thoughts please deliver them straight from your soul mary tell us what you think about this crazy song mary Tell done? us what you thought of that you're song. Not done yet. Mary. Uh, okay, I will We play. all want to. What? You're interrupting oh. my song? Yes. I have 15 more verses. I don't want to hear them. Okay. Um, I don't like this song, but <laughs> I appreciate what he's trying to do. <laughs> which is? Which is making like a satirical song about songs. Yeah. Yeah. Right? Exactly. The lyrics are like, this is the second verse, or is it a bridge? I think he says that at some point. Yeah, yeah. You know? Yeah. Or it might be the bridge, or, or it, it might be, be the, the next bridge. verse. Yeah, it might be the next verse. Yeah, yeah. Like, I, I get what he's trying to do, and I appreciate that. I just yeah. really don't like his singing style. Oh, okay, okay. Yeah. Robert Wyatt, that's a singer. I uh, I like him a lot. I'm a big fan of, of, of um, Soft Machine, which is the group he was in originally. One, he was also in the Wildflowers. Wildflowers are like the mythical, seminal Canterbury scene group. Like, it was kind of the group that everyone flowed through at one point that had, like, any kind of mark in the Canterbury scene, including most of the members of, of Soft Machine. And Soft Machine put out two albums of kind of short songs with that would kind of start and stop without, unexpectedly and and just kind of various styles and stuff like that. And then their third album, 
they went in a completely different direction. They went heavily into like jazz rock. It's a f- double album. Mm-hmm. It has four songs in it. There's one song per side. Um, for instance, so this song. So well, let me just let me before I go go to that. I was going to say something different, but let me just say this first. I think that Wyatt didn't like the direction the band was going in. I don't think he liked the the stretched out long songs. Partly because he was the drummer in the group, and that was probably really tiring having to drum for like twenty minute long songs for concerts. But also because I think he preferred like the earlier setup where you know it was just like three to two to four minute songs and you just did whatever you're gonna do and then you just move on to the next one you know and you didn't get bogged down and like having to do like 20 minutes or something or 20 but i mean he went along with it on this album he his song on it is moon in june which is basically sign curtain is like the shorter version of moon in june moon in june is also a meta song about about writing a song about what's how songs are composed and stuff like yeah. that and of course moon in june being like the corniest kind of lyric you could think of right rhyming moon and june together and that's yeah. basically what the song is about but it's 27 minutes and i think he would have preferred to do it as a three minute song yes and then move on to something else but that's not what soft machine wanted to do so he left soft machine and he kind of grabbed a bunch of other guys from different groups most notably the keyboard player from caravan and he started the group matching mole which matching mole is a pun typically british pun on the french machine moule which means soft machine right and so Matching Mole yes. is a sort of a... He's sort of still in Soft Machine. Yeah. But they're called Matching Mole. Right. Now, I kind of think... I don't know why it's called Sign Curtain, but I kind of imagine that what he's doing with this song is pulling back the curtain Yeah. on what songwriting is. Mm-hmm. And so it's like he's signed the, this curtain. Like he's... You know, like it's like, here is your... Here is my autograph on this on this thing that's revealing the truth of songwriting to you. That's what I kind of think of it as anyway. Makes sense. I'm sorry you didn't like it. I do think it's kind of fun, but I can see why. It's, it, I, you know, when I put it on there, I, I knew that it was going to be the difficult track that would be hard yeah. to like convince people to like mm-hmm. as much as I like it. Right. But then I'm, you know, you know me. All right. Well, let's move on to your next song. Okay. Before we, before you kick this one even further to the curb. I said like nothing bad about it, really. <laughs> I know you appreciated it. I thought it was actually quite uh, fair how you said. So... <laughs> Let's uh, let's move on to the next song. This is Simon and Garfunkel. I don't know if you've ever heard of them, Mary. Pretty Who? pretty big in the '60s, and their song "Punky's Dilemma" from their album "Bookends." This came out in '67. So let's give a listen, everybody, to "Punky's Dilemma." Wish I was a Kellogg's cornflake floating in my boat, taking moving. Coming first loot 
by the basement door Everybody knows what he's tippy-toeing down there for back and we're all asking what what was that dilemma i don't know what it was i don't know either i think maybe the song is about paul, paul simon and his dilemma of what doing a solo career not not quite not at that point i don't know he might have been thinking about it but i don't think he was considering it yet what year the song about? this song came out in 1967 it was two years later that they, they broke up basically after right. bridge over trouble water in 69 70 so what do you think of this song i'm usually not a big simon and garfield no no, he's not a big fan of them. Really? Yeah. That's weird, but okay. Why? I don't know. Well, A, they were super popular in their day. Yeah. I just find them so inoffensive that it's hard to imagine why someone would like them. Well, I just don't find them super interesting. Okay. Huh. Like, every time I listen to a song of theirs, I'm like, meh. <laughs> like, even like Scarborough Fair? Yeah. Especially Scarborough Fair. Wow. Yeah. That song is so amazing. Mm. Okay. It is. I had to sing that song in in choir. Okay. This is you're like your mom now. Which is? She doesn't like a bunch of songs because she had to sing them in in, in elementary school for band. Yeah. You can't like a song if you had to sing it in elementary school with the one exception of 16 tons, which is a banger. <laughs> um <laughs> All right. I think yeah, it's just a brilliantly done song and brilliantly arranged as well. Like the way that they have, uh, they arrange, they do their voices is fantastic. And let me just say, I did like choir. Yeah, I liked my music teacher a lot. She was fantastic. She yeah. was a really good teacher. She was yeah. like probably one of my favorite teachers in elementary school. I was in the choir at my elementary school, and I was in a choir for the whole city that I had to audition for. Yeah, you know, but yeah, I don't, I don't know. It's just something about having to. Sing it that often. Yeah. And also, because I sang that one in the school choir. Yeah. Which was not a very good choir because mm-hmm. it's just a bunch of kids. Yeah. I mean, not that the not that the children's choir was in was in, was that much better realistically, <laughs> but at least we had to like yeah practice more sure. and like do more and we actually like performed concerts and stuff. Like yeah. there were some yeah. stakes there. Yeah. Um. But yeah, no. <laughs> But, oh, but I do like some of, I like Paul Simon. Yeah. I like some of his stuff. Okay. Me and Julio Down by the Schoolyard. Classic. Obviously. Classic a great song. song. Yeah. Um, Duncan got really into one of his albums over the summer, and I was kind of like, meh on it, but. Which album? The one he did in South Africa. Oh, Graceland. Graceland. Yeah, it's okay. It's okay. Yeah. Yeah. It's no Paul Simon, the first album that has like Duncan and. Yeah. And. Uh, I know. He should like that one. Yeah. He should like that because it has Duncan on it. Yeah. And it's, and it's got me and Julio in the Schoolyard yeah. and then that. Song Peace Like a River. Yeah, that's Such a great a good, song. That's a great song, yeah. Yeah, that's really good. Well, what do you think of this song, though? Did you not like oh, it? Oh, I like it. Oh, okay. Okay. Yeah. It's fun. It's that was a, a fun big, song. That was a big build up to say, I did like the song. <laughs> nice. Thanks. Thanks for keeping us all in tenterhooks. Yeah, no worries. That's good. Yeah, it is a fun song. I think it's a really fun song. And it's, you know, it's one of those things like, here's a group that I think most people think of Simon Garfunkel as like a serious group, you know, Bridge Over Troubled Water. And, you know, they're all. Very much, very serious. Ah, I, right? I think Scarborough Fair is a pretty silly song. It's pretty silly. Yeah. Why? Because he's like singing about a bunch of herbs. Well, that's part of it, but they're also it also has Canticle in it too, where they're talking about war. That's true. So it's like because there's two songs being sung at the same time, right? And kind of a round one written by 
Art Garfunkel, and mm-hmm. then the other one was Paul Simon's mm-hmm. ad- adaptation of Scarborough Fair. Probably not his adaptation. Probably borrowed from people he met in England when he was there. And yeah, borrowed it, kind of like Bob Dylan did the same thing. Board arrangements, but anyway. Um, so this song, Punky's Dilemma. The reason I said that about it, that mm-hmm. I think it's about Paul Simon to a degree, is because he was called Punky by his friends. Well, he was asked by Mike Nichols, who'd fallen in love with Simon Garfunkel's music, to provide some songs for The Graduate, for the film The Graduate. And Paul Simon felt like that was a sellout to give your mu- music to a movie, and he's really unwilling to do it. But I guess Nichols sent him the script and talked to him about it, and he was friends with Dustin Hoffman, and so he said, "Okay, I'll do it." But that was the only one he ever did. He didn't do any other movies except for his own movies later on, like uh, One Trick Pony. But yeah, he didn't like wasn't really keen on like providing music to to uh, movies. I think he did a stage musical as well. Did he? It was not a success though, unfortunately. But then. Um, me I should say, I think he did. I know he did. I just can't remember the name of it. Me and Julio down at the schoolyard was used in Rushmore. Yeah, that's different. Than, I know, I'm uh, just joking. Yeah, it's a little <laughs> different. That's just someone using songs. You're not having to write a song for a movie. No, I know it. I was just joking. So I think that like him talking about being a... Uh, he wished he was a Kellogg's Cornflake floating in a bowl making movies. I think that kind of oh, relates yeah. to that. Right. His feelings, his sort of ambivalent feelings about this... Uh, I think he... Is it Mary Jane, though? He mentions marijuana, of course, which... Everyone was mentioning at the time. That's not the first time that he made a a sort of obvious mention of, of marijuana. I think there's three different songs that he does it, actually, because I think he does it in America. And then he also does it in uh, a desultory Philippic, or how it was Robert McNamara into submission. I think in that song as well, he mentions, uh, I think he says, I smoke a pot of tea a day. Get it? So, but yeah, the first verse or whatever. Verse? I've got some real estate here in my bag. That's the line from America. Oh, no, I'm talking about... Um, about... Punky's Dilemma. Yeah. Was, wish I was a Kellogg's cornflake. Yeah. Floating in my bowl. Taking movies. Okay. Relaxing a while. Living in style. Talking to a raisin who occasionally plays L.A. Casually glancing at his toupee. <laughs> so I think that kind of feels like that's sort of like the showbiz dilemma. There, yeah. Right? Of phoniness and, and the sort of feeling of disconnection or the feeling of wanting to be disconnected. Yeah. Because that almost like floating in a bowl, wish I was a cornflake cornflake floating in a bowl make taking movies that's almost like scene for scene from from the graduate where where um there's like a party and dustin hoffman's character is laying at the bottom of the pool so he can avoid everyone and just be in this total silence mm. and in the movie i think they play sounds of silence instead because mike nickel so paul simon wrote this song and overs as you know possible for the movie and he brought them to to mike nichols and mike nichols was kind of like eh, not so great so then yeah. that he and Mark Garfunkel, who was there, because they were like presenting it to him, like singing it to him, they're like, oh, okay. Uh, and then Mark Garfunkel's like, well, we have another song called Mrs. Roosevelt. Maybe we could use that. And he's like, oh, it's that song. What? You had a song called Mrs. Roosevelt and you didn't tell me? Because Mrs. Robinson is very similar. Right. And so that became Mrs. Robinson. They sort of sing oh, that song okay. for him. And then, and then he's like, okay, no, that's the song I want. So what happened with Punky's Dilemma then is that it appears on side two of Simon Garfunkel's fourth album, which is called Bookends, which is often described as a concept album, which doesn't make any sense to me, but it's often called that. Uh, I think because at the time, in 68, it was like the thing the thing to do is to make a concept album. So, of course, it is like a, you know, good for your marketing. The newest concept album from Simon Garfunkel, Bookends. Side one, slightly related to each other. Side two, a bunch of singles I recorded a year before they even started in this album. <laughs> The reason it took a long time for this album to come up was someone was suffering from terrible writer's block. Mm. And he couldn't seem to like come up with a bunch of songs. He was doing a few songs. And so Clive Davis, late Columbia label head Clive Davis, 
uh, brought in this hotshot producer named John Simon, who we've played on the show before. He did the Elves song. So he brought him in. He's like, I want you to you know, get this Simon kid working. The problem with John Simon, he was the wrong person to bring in because he was more of an artist producer than he was like a company producer. Right. And so he so, was like, give him all the time he needs. He's an artist. Yeah. <laughs> so Simon Garfunkel did Parsley, Rosemary, or, or sorry, Parsley, Sage, Rosemary, and Thyme, which has Scarborough Fair in it, obviously. Yep. And then it was like a whole year went by. They got two singles out of Simon. They got Fakin' It and At the Zoo. So John Simon helped him with Fakin' It. So they did Fakin' It together. Then he helped him with Punky's Dilemma, Overs, and then Save the Life of My Child. So Overs and Save the Life of My Child were both on bookends along with Punky's Dilemma. And John Simon added the Moog synthesizer to, to Save the Life of My Child. Now, the interesting thing with Simon and Garfungal is they were signed to an old contract with, with Columbia. And what it did was it... Pay it in the contract guaranteed they would pay for the studio time for Simon and Garfunkel rather than the other way around. The usual case is the band pays for their studio time. So I'm going to assume that since they signed a folk group, they just thought, oh, well, this band won't cost anything to produce, so we don't have to worry about the contract. So they didn't. But the thing is, is like the band just took advantage of it because they could. Oh, of course. Why would you not? Yeah. And, you know, here they have a guy who's got writer's block and is a perfectionist. Well, what more is he going to do in the studio? But it's like, and I think. Perfectionism can be a side side uh, product of, of writer's block as well. So like Punky's Dilemma, which sounds like a pretty simple song, right? Yes, definitely. Took 50 hours to record. <laughs> 50 hours. Now, I don't even think those 50 hours were spent on the musical bed for it, because it's pretty simple. It's a strum acoustic guitar mm-hmm. and a bass. Do, do, do. Yeah. <laughs> and a bass playing. It's just Joe Osborne and bass, most likely. And that guy could probably do the party play in the first time sitting down. So that's done. Yeah. That's out of the way. So really what they spent all their time on was the vocals. Mm, and the and the, the clattering, crashing sounds. Yeah, they did sound effects. That's right. That added to this. That was 48 hours. That was 48 hours of the <laughs> sessions. Um, yeah. So apparently they like recorded, then re-recorded the vocals. They ended up recording the vocals note for note. So they just go like, ah, okay, good. Move on. Start again. <laughs> Dude. You know, just like that. Like, yeah. They just took forever, but they were allowed to. So they, so whatever. That's what they said. Whatever. You know what? I think I said I was not going to play any more songs after the 10cc, but I'm going to play one more song, everyone. This is one more extra song, because you know what, Mary? Before they were Simon and Garfunkel, here's the thing. I'll tell you a little bit about their early career. Before they were Simon and Garfunkel, before they were fake folk musicians, they were fake Everly Brothers. They performed as Tom and Jerry. Really? Paul Simon took on the name Jerry Landis. Uh, Arthur, Arthur Garfunkel became Artie Gar, and they did rock and roll music, and they performed as like... A total Everly Brothers act. So we're going to play a song by Tom and Jerry. This is one of my favorite songs, right? And this song's called I'm Lonesome. It was the B-side to a song called Looking At You. All the songs, by the way, never use a G in them if they have like a a gerund. I think that's what it's called. So it's not looking at you. It's looking. It's looking. It's not dancing. It's dancing. But anyway, so let's give a listen, apostrophe, to Tom and Jerry's I'm... Oh, Mary. Careful with your... Sorry. Sorry. Smashing away over there. What are you apostrophizing there? Uh, listen. Kind of like dancing, apostrophe, you know. No. Listen ends with E-N. Glancing or looking. Listen, apostrophe. Nope. Here we go, everyone. Nope. Tom and Jerry. Nope. I'm lonesome. Not how apostrophes work. <laughs> You are my dream of love that won't come true Yet the thrill remains but just the thought of you Lonesome, I'm lonesome Lonesome 
of the uh, Jewish Everly Brothers. Uh, I thought they were pretty fun. Yeah, it was good. I like their their picture with their flat tops. Yeah, yeah their flat top haircuts. They yeah. were they're well and truly into it. I mean, I you know I, I'm not that concerned with authenticity, but Simon and Garfunkel are like a really interesting group, just because they're like the least authentic band of the '60s. Like people make fun of the Monkees for being the prefab four. Like Simon and Garfunkel, like they were just like chancers every which way. Like right, you know, here in the '50s they were doing like an Everly Brothers knockoff. Then they kind of split up for a while. Yeah. Simon Garfunkel, he did like a, he was in a did a single with uh, Carol King as the cousins. He uh, did some songs as the Mystics. He did some songs as Tiki's and the Tiki and the someone Tiki's and the so and so. I can't remember. That. But yeah, he just did all this stuff, and then and then that didn't go anywhere really for him. So then he was like kind of knocking around New York, doing this and that, and then he met with with Artie again, and they put together like a folk duo because folk music was suddenly popular. So here's the thing to do. Right. So they put together a little folk group. They get signed to Columbia Records. Mm-hmm. They have an album produced Wednesday morning, 3 a.m. No one cares about it. Yeah. Absolute flopperoo. Tanks. So Paul Simon and Art Garfunkel break up again. Paul Simon goes to England, starts, you know, kind of jo- kind of starts traveling around the folk circuit there and playing. Art Garfunkel goes back to doing whatever he's doing. Then at, at Columbia, their producer, Tom Wilson, really likes a song on, on Wednesday morning, 3 a.m. called Sounds of Silence. Mm-hmm. And he's like, I think this song could be a big hit if it was like a folk rock song. So he brought in some session musicians, arranged the song, and recorded a kind of rock, folk rock version of Sounds of Silence. Simon Garfunkel had nothing to do with it at all. They had no idea this was happening. Right. It just got released. And suddenly people are on the phone to Paul Simon in England, get back here right away. You have an enormous hit and we need to get some more music from you and we need to make... So he's like, what? So he flies back to England and suddenly Simon and Garfunkel are a big thing. Hmm. And so he and Artie are back together again. Right. But they didn't choose that. They actually broke up. Yeah. You know, they, they, so suddenly, you know, so I think that's why they didn't really last because they weren't really like dedicated to right. like, the concept of being together. But yeah, that, you know, I just find it kind of funny that like they're, they're, you know, the big hit, like the thing that breaks yeah. your career, it wasn't even like by them, basically. Yeah. I mean, the song is by him, but like what made it successful was the arrangement by Tom Wilson. Yeah. Um, which he tried to do with, um, he tried to do with Bob Dylan as well, but it didn't really work the same. It didn't work mm. out as well. He did a song for Bob, uh, what's it called now? Can't remember, sorry. It's the oatmeal one. It is not. Not stuck inside of oatmeal with those Memphis blues again. <laughs> Not Memphis, Tennessee. West Memphis, Arkansas. Of course. Yeah. It's, uh, I hope everyone enjoyed hearing Tom and Jerry. Maybe you didn't know that about 
Simon and Garfunkel that before they I didn't know that about Simon before and they were a folk duo singing with their lovely voices they were a rockin' group singing <laughs> with their Everly Brothers voices. All right, next song. Mary loves the next song, everybody. So I, you better like it, or Mary's gonna be mad at you. This is 1910 Fruit Gun Company with the song song from their album One Two Three Red Light that had the song One Two Three Red Light on it. That was the big hit. But this song is very good. It's from 1968. Here we go, go, go. meet me down at Lulu's. We'll do the horse all night. And then we'll play a game called One, Two, Three, Red Light, 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 Light. Reach out of the darkness Don't leave me in the dark Let's have a stone soul picnic Down in that garter park Yummy, 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 shooby do that day Simon says you're perfect in every way La la means I love you and that's only the start May I take a giant step into your heart Let's go to the jelly jungle And take a dip in Indian Lake I've got the feeling that love is all around Cause we wear it on our face Everybody now Do-do-do-do-do-do-do-do-do-do-do-do-do-do-do-do-do-do-do-do-do-do-do-do-do-do-do-do-do-do-do-do-do-do-do-do-do-do-do-do-do-do-do-do-do-do-do-do-do-do
as a group called Jekyll and the Hydes. And you know why they were called that? Because one of their guitarists' names was Frank Jekyll. Uh, he was a guitarist. He, with Mark Gutkowski, who was on lead vocals and organ, Floyd Marcus on drums, Pat Carwin on bass, and Steve, uh, sorry, on guitar, and Steve Mortkowitz on bass. They signed with Buddha Records in 1967, which was both a good and bad thing to do as a band. It was good because you were guaranteed work. Mm-hmm. It was bad because you were guaranteed that people would do a lot of work in your name that you would have nothing to do with. Oh. So basically, when you sign with Buddha Records, you were signing with Super K Productions, which was Jerry Kazanitz and Jeff Katz. And they were like the the minds behind the bubblegum explosion. They were the, you know, they kind of brought together all the talents that made the Ohio Express, who the Express, like the Ohio, Ohio Express as a group, did not have Joey Levine as a singer. Joey Levine started off his career singing for a group called The Third Rail. And then that didn't really go great, although there is a song by The Third Rail on the first Nuggets collection by Lenny Kay. Anyway, when that didn't really go anywhere, he kind of became like a session singer and stuff like that. And then he kind of fell into the into the Buddha records, into the Super K orbit. And suddenly he's the lead singer for the Ohio Express and writing songs for them. And that's just how it kind of went. Now, what's lucky for uh, the 1910 Fruit Gum Company? Well, one, they were kind of unlucky because... They were no longer Jekyll and the Hydes. They became the 1910 Fruit Gum Company because that is a way more bubblegum name. But also... Yeah, Jekyll and the Hydes is not very bubblegum. No, it's not. But what's good is that the lead singer for the group, uh, Mark Gutkowski, still got to sing lead vocals for the group. So unlike the lead singer for the Ohio Ohio Express, who was the sidelined and favor of Joey Levine, Mark Gutkowski still got to sing. And he had a really great voice, I think. His voice in this song is quite good, and his voice on One, Two, Three, Red Light and Indian Giver is... You know, he just had like a little bit of a, an, an emotional element to his voice. had some drama in his voice. What's interesting... Actually, what's interesting is like the first album, which was Simon Says, of the 11 songs, five of them are written by by the members of the, of the band, which is pretty rare for, for a bubblegum group. In 1968, they put out three albums. They put out Simon Says, they put out One, Two, Three, Red Light, and they put out Goody Goody Gumdrops. Now, One, Two, Three, Red Light, which is the second of the three albums, that one still has six songs out of 11 by the group. That's pretty good. Like They were keeping up yeah. their end of stuff. But by this point, even though their songs were written by them, they weren't playing on the album. They were on the road touring, right? making money on the road, and session musicians were doing the songs. And when they came back, Mark Gukowski would, put his, would add his vocals to them. And so that's what this song is. It's just a song played by session musicians. Oh, okay. And then he would come into the studio and add his, add his vocals to it. But what's fun about this song is that it's it's... A song about some other songs. Other songs from 1968, including oh, okay. including a lot of tire pumping for Buddha Records. Yeah, because they did mention One Two Three Red Light. Yeah, which is 1910 Fruit Gun Company. Yeah. which it's okay to mention your own song. So it starts off goes Come on and meet me down at Lulu's. So down at Lulu's was an Ohio Express song. Okay. We'll do the horse all night. The horse was an instrumental by Cliff Nobles. Okay. And then we'll play a game called One Two Three Red Light, which as we said is a 1910 Fruit Gun Company. Sure. Then Reach Out of the Darkness, Don't Leave Me in the Dark, is a line from friend, from a song called Reach Out of the Darkness mm-hmm. by a group called Friend and Lover, which was a, a married couple named Jim and Kathy Post who sang together as a folk duo. Let's have a stoned soul picnic. Do you know who that is, Mary? Nope. That's the Fifth Dimension. Well, actually, Laurie Nero. Laurie Nero wrote the song, and the Fifth Dimension made a hit out of it. So that's, okay. that's 68. That, so let's have a stoned soul picnic. Down in MacArthur Park. Well, that's pretty obvious. MacArthur Park, mm-hmm. the Jimmy Webb song sung by Richard Harris. Yummy, yummy, yummy. Ohio, Ohio Express. Right, good, very good. This one I do not know. It, she'll be do da day. I don't know what he's saying in that part of the song. If someone else out there can translate that for me, I would appreciate it. Hmm. But anyway, I put should we do by day in, in here. Simon says you're perfect in every way. Simon says another 1910 Fruit Grown Company song. Lala means I love you. 
the Delphonics, and that's only a start. May I take a giant step into your heart? A giant step is a song by, or take a giant step is a song by 1910 Fruit Gun Company, also by the by the Monkees, but that was from 1966. Let's go to the Jelly Jungle, the Lemon Pipers, another Buddha act who did, of course, most famously Green Tambourine, and take a dip in Indian Lake. There's a reference to the song Indian Lake by the Cow Sills, written by our friend Tony Romeo, who wrote songs for the Partridge family. I've got a feeling that love is all around because we wear it on our face. That's a reference to Love is All Around by the Trogs, which you know, Mary. You probably don't know the Trogs version, but you know the parody of it in the song in the movie. Um, what's that movie called? Um, what's that movie called? I don't know. You know the movie? No. That love movie. The movie about love. Christmas love. It's called Christmas love. Richard Curtis movie with um, a bunch of people. It's like a big ensemble cast with like Liam Neeson and, and uh, Emma Thompson and everyone. Everyone's in that movie. Love Actually. Oh. You know, and like the the Bill Nighy character, he sings that song, you know. I've seen that movie once. Da, 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 it's Christmas. Dude. But anyway, that's, you know, love is all around us. That's the original song by the Trogs. Anyway, that's the song. Okay. I just thought if you didn't know that song, you'd know the other one. But apparently you've only seen the movie once, which is insane, because everyone's seen that movie at least four or five times. No, I didn't like that movie. <gasps> huh. Why not? I don't know. The characters didn't seem very nice. Mm. Yeah. So there we go. That's that song anyway. It's kind of fun. Yep. I like the sort of self-referential songs. And not something that happens a lot in, in mainstream pop. It seems like R&B and soul music love to write songs about themselves. Boogaloo Down Broadway, We Got More Soul. Mm-hmm. Uh, there's a song by Betty Davis. I can't remember the name of it, but it's really great. That, once again, it's all about how, how great soul bands are and stuff right. like that. Then we have this one song by the 1910 Fruit Gun Company. Yep. Celebrating <laughs> celebrating uh, the songs of 1968. Okay. Anyway, I just hit that thing. Wait, but to be fair, I yep. don't think bubblegum pop is like mainstream pop oh it is music. it was at the time it was super popular was it oh my gosh hmm. why do you think there's like a million songs that came out of that time period enough songs came out of that time period mary for some guy who's a crazy person to put together a 43 cd collection of bubblegum pop from that from that time period it's a lot that's a lot of songs hmm. because once something's a hit and it's just like a no-name thingy that i mean think about think about poor suffering graham goldman in england having to do a song a week yeah. And sending that off to those guys. And they're just right. putting it out under different names. Yeah. You wrote a song called Umbopo? They'll put it out by Crazy Element, Elephant. You did Sausalito? Ohio Express can do that one. <laughs> Someone wrote this song? That can be that can be a 1910 yeah. Company song. Someone did this song? That'll be the so-and-so. Mm-hmm. You know? Like, oh, there's just so many songs that came out of that time mm. period. It's crazy. It's really crazy. But that's the same, like I've said before, that's the same with any hit will birth a thousand imitations because someone else is hoping that that single will catch fire yeah. and all the girls will buy it mm-hmm. and then they'll have a hit yeah. and they'll put some money in the bank. Mm-hmm. Most of the times it just falls on the floor out of the jukebox and gets thrown in a garbage yeah. can. I don't know, dad. I'm pretty sure that those Charlie Bone series about a little boy who found out he was magic and went to a school for people who were magic. Yeah. Um, I'm pretty sure those went, those did pretty well. If evidenced by the fact that the used bookstore wouldn't buy them because he said that they have too many of them, but he'd put them in the free bin outside. (laughs) (laughs) Well, you sold your Charlie Bone books? I didn't want to keep them. Yeah. I don't need those. That's sad. It's taking up a lot of space. That's sad, Mary. It's the end of an era. Is it? It's the end of the Charlie Bone era. Is it? I think there was a time and you loved Charlie Bone. I read them. You read them and you loved them. You you talked about it all the time, Mary. Remember I had to make you a Charlie Bone shirt? No. It was very simple. It just said, I love Charlie Bone. I wrote it in pen and ballpark right. pen on a shirt but anyway it said i love charlie bone yeah you wear that to school all the time mm. it was not long until it was like lost you wear right. it, wore it so often it yeah. just disappeared yeah it's... <laughs> it's 
There weren't bad books. It's a time that's gone. I just don't understand, like, why you would give them away. Why, when you would give them away so that someone else could give them away for you. Yeah. That's the weird part of it to me. Yeah. Like, it feels like you used a middleman to do something that you could have done. Well, I thought he might have wanted to buy them. But, I mean, if I, wh- wh- where am I going to give them away? <laughs> he has a bookstore. You can put them out front. People can take them. I just Maybe you. someone else's kids just read Harry Potter and want something that's... Slightly, reminiscent of slightly. but not nearly as good as harry potter you know <laughs> yep you're just chasing that you're like a you're a harry potter addict just chasing yeah, that high. yeah exactly yeah. oh so many of those books like imagine that the uh that one that was such a disaster like or the percy whatever his name is and the olympians or whatever oh percy jackson and the olympians those, all those books that came out after that were all kind of chasing that uh, that uh, harry potter money yep and then there was uh and then there was all the hunger games ones all the twilight then there no sorry then there's all the twilight ones yeah yeah that were like mocking twilight or not mocking but trying to yeah. be like twilight and yeah. then same Have with black hung- co- black covers yeah usually without like a like a blue flower or a something blue flower like or some a kind of, like a single like spot color a spot color yeah, yeah a single yeah. object yeah. in a color black and white hand holding a red apple yeah yeah no that's twilight okay but that's what I'm using as mine. Yes, yeah. right, right, yes. Yeah. yeah, like that's it. And then there was all the Hunger Games ones with the dystopian futures. Yeah, Where yeah. people were like, you know, like Divergent was like sure, a, yeah. like that. Divergent. Maze Runner. Wait, there's, what are the books? Divergent, Invergent. And Convergent. In, indulgent. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> we went in different directions with that, but yeah. <laughs> yes. <laughs> Divergent is a movie that made me very mad. Why? Because watching it, there was like, there's like a character and he's supposed to be like 16 or 18. Mm-hmm. And then you meet his mom. Yeah. And she looks like 28. And I looked it up and the actress playing his mom was six years older than him. That is weird casting. I know. But I guess they, the thing is like movies like that, they don't think that kids want to see older people. I think that's what it is. Yeah. They don't, they don't look at Harry Potter and the fact that everyone loves Snape. Yeah. And everyone loves everyone Dumbledore. Everyone loves Dumbledore and, yeah. Mon- and McGonagall. <laughs> McGonagall. Like everyone like walks through this movie. It's like, oh, I love McGonagall. <laughs> you know? Like just cast like, or like Molly Weasley. Yeah. yeah. Like no one's coming out of that like, ew, why'd they have that old lady playing their mom? <laughs> She's a mom. People know what their moms look like. You know? Like, people know what their, like, parents and their grandparents look like and yeah, their yeah. teachers. Yeah. They're not, it's not like seeing people over 30 will, like, make their eyeballs fall into their skulls. <laughs> but, yeah. And, like, I'm pretty sure in the story, this woman is supposed to have her kid pretty young. But she's supposed to have had her kid at, like, 16. Not at, like, 6 or 8 or whatever. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Like, what? <laughs> so ridiculous. <laughs> All right. Should we move on to your next song, sweetie? Yeah. All right. Here's a little obscurity for everybody. This is Peter Sarsted. He had a big hit, but this is not it. This song is No More Lollipops from his first album, which is self-titled. Peter Star- Star- Sarsted came out in 1969, everyone. The sexiest year. Let's give a listen to... I didn't say it. Serge Gainsbourg said it, Mary. Okay. Soiseau Neuf, Année Erotique. Yes. This going along with the Gainsbourg, man. Right. You gotta go I along with this the was, I thought this was a children-friendly podcast, Dad. Why is that children unfriendly? All right. Let's, uh... We're sex positive here. Let's listen to Peter Sarstead and No More Lollipops while I deal with my puritanical daughter here. This is being sex positive and talking about sex around kids. Dad. <laughs> not that I think kids actually listen to this, but... Well, kids would listen I'm to this. I'm a kid. <laughs> no, you're not. <laughs> a child at heart, everyone. <laughs> By that she means she's immature. 
All right, I'm we'll I, I'm uh, I'm old enough to in a Divergent movie have a 16 year old son. <laughs> <laughs> All right, here's no more lollipops. The cops are coming, they're coming, they're coming to take you away. No more lollipops for you. No more lollipops for you. But what you're gonna do? It's the end of the party, the party, the party, and nothing can be done. No more lollipops for you. There's no more lollipops for you, but what you gonna do? Time's come to close shop, time's come to pack up, but what a pity, friend. Just take a last look at your account book, yes, this is the end. With the money, the money, the money And now you've got to pay No more lollipops for you No more lollipops for you What you gonna do? Are you really in a fix, boy? A fix, boy, a fix, boy What would your mother say? No more lollipops for you No more lollipops for you No more lollipops for you No, no more lollipops for you No more lollipops for you Yes, no more lollipops for you All right, we're back. Mary, mm-hmm. Mary, thoughts on No More Lollipops? Uh, it wasn't my favorite song, oh. but I did think it was pretty fun. Yeah. But I didn't like the ending. Oh, I thought that's what I kind of liked about it. I enjoyed that element of it. That's fair. It's going to go in my, my top five songs that end with sound effects. <laughs> which includes... Um, Baby, Please Don't Go, which ends with a car crash. Okay. Seven and Seven Is by Love, which ends with a nuclear explosion. Okay. That song by Cornelius. Song thank by Cornelius. The, thank that's you for the, the music. That's right. Good one. Thank you. Ah, one more, one more. Only we only need one more, Mayor. Think about it. Put your buy into that, would you? Well, I'm. Is does uh, ah, oh, I lost it. That's fine. That's fine. Okay, I won't say very much about Peter Sarsted. What I find interesting about this song, though, this is a guy. This is his first album. Oh wait. Yeah. You wouldn't have this on yours, but "Cows Around" by Corb Lund ends with a cow mooing. Okay. Okay. So you'd have that in your mix. Yeah, probably. In a sound effect. I'll let you know. Yep. I'll Con- let you know. Okay. Sorry. Continue. I just find it fascinating. Well, I guess what happened with with this, what happened with him, I think with you know, is this is a single. This is the world of singles, right? So, so he put out a song called "Where Did You Go to, My Lovely," which I do not like at all. I really hate that song. Um, it's one of the reasons I don't like the uh, Wes Anderson film, The Darjeeling Limited, because it has a it has a short movie that opens the film where they use that song throughout it. Okay. And I dislike that song so much, it really makes me hate that short movie. Hmm. And it kind of spoils the rest of the Dark Chilling Limited for me. Interesting. I just, yeah, I just, I just, every time I watch that movie, I'm just like, why are they playing this music? <laughs> <It's> my reaction. 
like that. I like that you're like you're acknowledging. <laughs> this is a big baby. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yeah, I admit it. I admit it. So, but I think that he put that song. I think that the record company put that song out. Where did you go to, my lovely? And then it was like a surprise hit. Right. Everyone loved it. This waltz time song about the the you know this uh, woman ending up in this kind of jet set life that ruins her ruins her life. And so I think then they went like, oh, this was, song was big. Let's pump a bunch of money into an album, and we'll put it out, and we'll make more money. So so like a song like this, no more lollipops. I mean, this has like a huge arrangement to it it's like a whole, whole orchestra playing like a horns and strings everyone's everyone's in it like that's like a huge kitchen sink production for this kind of kooky song about no more lollipops for you it's so great like i love it i love yeah the, i love the strings i love the way it's arranged it's i don't like i'm not but i wonder why they like i guess that they couldn't have heard the song before putting all the money into it but you think like hearing the song afterwards you think they kind of be like why did we invest so much money into this? Like, why did we think that this was oh, gonna? I don't. They really care. They're probably. I mean, it's all done at one time. Right. They just bring the. They bring in the strings and stuff yeah. like that. They just recorded one block booking, and then then they put it on all the songs that have already been recorded. So, I mean, it's not super expensive for 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 record companies at the time. You know, there were people that were dedicated to it. Session fees were pretty cheap. You know. I guess that's true. Yeah. I guess they had said all these session musicians who mm-hmm, mm-hmm. would just do whatever. Yeah. So Sarsted actually grew up in India. His parents. Uh, were civil servants there and so he spent most of his life there until he was a teen and then after indian independence the family returned to england just in time for the skiffle boom and he and his brothers formed a group called the fabulous five now sarsted's older brother richard uh, became famous as a pop star named eden kane in the 60s uh sarsted peter sarsted played uh bass for him and then his younger brother whose name was clive had some success in the 70s as Robin Sarsted. Robin was his middle name. So yeah, it was kind of a musical family. They even recorded an album together. But yeah, I think Where Did You Go To My Lovely stinks as a song, but I love No More Lollipops. And there's another song on the album called Sayonara, which I also love. And I think I think it's going to be on a mix coming up. So prepare yourself for that. It's also very good. All right, next song, dear. Next song, what is it? Unless you want to do the song we did before Peter Sarsted again. No, I'm good. Okay. But you do like the song song. Yes. So we could play it one more time. No. Two more times? Nope. All right. How about we listen to Blossom Deary? Okay. With Bob Duro. Okay. Singing Answering Machine. Okay. Let's hear it. From her album Simply that mm-hmm. came out in 1982. Oh. Which may be the most recent song we played. I'm not sure. I have to look back through my... But okay. Let's uh, let's give it a listen, everyone. This is uh, Blossom Deary. This girl I know that she could have it all The wedding ring, the whole darn thing I was willing to tie the knot So I called her up And this is the answer I got I'm so sorry you have just reached my answering machine I'm not in at present, I'm sure you Go get married Oh, I need to know you 
the phone with Dad. So I stepped out to buy some dog food for the cat. Of course I called about three minutes after that. I'd be his wife and share his life. Well, of course you could write the plot. So I called him up and this is the answer I got. I'm so sorry you have just reached my answering machine. I'm not in at present, I'm sure you know this whole We're back, Mary. Yes. What you think of answering machine? I like the song. <laughs> this is cute, right? It's super fun. It's yeah. cute, but tells a story. But yep. Can you imagine proposing to someone or being proposed to, <laughs> not only over the phone, yeah. but over a voicemail? Well, maybe he's a long way away. Maybe he lives a long way away. Just call her back, hmm. or ask ask her to call you back. Yeah. I- yeah, the song is a bit more of a joke song. I mean, I know, I know. It's just, I like, like, I get it, but it, it just, it's such a funny prospect. Yeah, yeah. Yeah. Mary, have you ever heard of the song Timothy? But a miner who gets trapped in a mine with two other guys yes. and only two of them, or with three, two other guys. That, yeah, you Three of them are trapped in a mine and only two get out. You played it. Remember that song? Have you ever heard of the song, the, the Escape song, or the or Escape, or the Pina Colada song? Yes. Well, this song is written by the same person. This is a song by oh. Rupert Holmes. It actually was on the album Partners in Crime, where Escape bracket the pina colada and bracket song comes from you know what he loves this story song i think this song 
is as good as Escape, the Pina Colada song. Well, I'll say this. I'll say this. This song, Answering Machine, is performed by Rupert Holmes on that album, and it's no good. Oh. It's no good. Yeah. Like, it's just not good. Like, compared to this version. Yes. This well, version... I think you need the two singers. You need the two singers. That's that's right. He mm-hmm. did have a background si- backing singer on the song, but he doesn't have her as a forefront, like, I have her singing. Right. Trade-off. But you need that, exactly. Yes. You also need a sense of fun to it. His version's kind of plodding, mm. whereas Blossom, like, pumped, you know, mm-hmm. you know the, the great keyboard part to it yeah. that she plays on her Fender Rhodes or whatever. And, like, her voice is so cute. Her voice is cute. Bob Duro's is cute. Yeah. Like, he has this nice, really kind of... Mm-hmm. Interesting voice. Yeah. It kind of works together. They're both, they're both really work well It's like together. a very endearing song. Yeah, yeah. 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 Oh my gosh. I'm just thinking to myself that I want to play one more song. What song? You want to play uh, his version of it? No, I don't want to play it because it's not good. Shoot. You want to play his version of it? No, I want to play Bob Duro singing Baltimore Oriole. No, well, that's not relevant. I know it's not relevant, but so it's so good. don't play it. No. It's so good though. No, we'll find another time. I, don't, I can't think of another time. Oh, well, maybe one time we'll think about it. Yep. We'll do bird songs. Yeah. I got some bird songs. Well, there's one song we can't do, though, because it's on a mixtape. Okay, that's fair. That's one you would like to do. Yeah. <laughs> we won't say what it is, but... We, but yeah, no, I won't play that song. But anyway, yeah. It's just... Together, it, it just really... It works really well. And I love the I love uh, Bob Duro doing the beep sounds. That's really yeah. That's really nice. Like, yeah. this is the way... The whole way they do it. In every mm-hmm. way, it works. And the way that he does it, in every way, it's wrong. And it's right. Just, it's really interesting to me that that the writer of the song could get it so wrong and, yeah. and the way it's produced and how he sings Does it. Does he sing is his, like the the escape the Pina Colada song is that his version? Like yeah. him singing that's yeah. like that famous version. Yeah, yeah. Yeah, cuz that song is quite like it's interestingly sung, yeah, right? Yeah. Like it's not mm. like poorly done. Yeah. So it's interesting that yeah, he could get yeah, the, a song that can can be and is um shown to be yeah. like so possible to do so well yeah. by these two that he could get it so wrong. Yeah. Well, I mean, he got, I think he got it wrong, but it was a top 40 hit answering machine anyway. So hmm. what do I know? But if you listen to it, I'm not going to play it because it sucks. But if you do listen, uh, maybe I'll maybe I'll post it on the page just so people can click on it if they're interested. And not yeah, have to like look a it YouTube up. video. Yeah. Or whatever. But it's, it's not good. It's not good hmm. at all. Where's Blossom Deary? Mwah. All right. Mary, we're heading into the home stretch here. This is our penultimate song. Oh, great! So that so that the last song was our ultra penultimate song. Last song with the ultra ultra penultimate. This is our penultimate song, and this is Randy Newman. Mm-hmm. The song is "Pants." Yep, comes from his album "Born Again." Okay, which came out in 1979. Mm-hmm. Shall we listen to it? Yes. Then we'll start it. It'll start dramatically. Everyone, here we go.
Okay, we're back in Mary. Yes. I would like your thoughts about pants. Not the song, the article of clothing. <laughs> anyway, what do you think? I like pants. Oh, good. I got these new pants the other day. Yeah. I think they're pretty cute. Sure. They've got flowers on them. Very nice. Nice pattern. Yeah, I like it. Can you wear them for work? I could. Okay. I think I want to kind of save them for, for personal use pants, though. Okay. Okay. Yeah. Do you ruin your pants wearing them at work? Yeah, I just wear them so much. And oh, okay. I'm like walking around so much and yeah. like doing a lot. I tend to like wear them out pretty quickly. Mm, mm. Not like super quickly, but. Yeah, quick enough. You know, quick enough. Whereas my personal pants, I, you know, wear them for less time and I don't move as much or yeah. like I'm not. Like I wouldn't use these pants. I wouldn't go on like a long walk with these pants. I'd wear like different pants for that. So. All right. And, and Mary. Mm-hmm. Thank you for making me pay so dearly for my little joke. But what did you think <laughs> of the song pants? You didn't pants? want to hear about my pants. <laughs> what did you think about the song pants? You should have asked me about pants when you knew I was wearing my new pants. <laughs> um, oh, about the song pants. Yeah. I think it's a fun song. Yeah. Yeah. Yep. As Once again, when I think that you probably, I think it was on a mixtape. Yes, it up, was. So you heard I, it from when there. When I played that, or I would. Eve and I were in the car and yeah. we were listening to the mixtape. Yeah. And she said, I haven't heard this song in so long. <laughs> <laughs> Did she like it? Yep. Yeah. It's a fun song. It is. I just like how dramatic it starts. You know, like it has such an important beginning to the song and then it just turns out to be a song about someone who was going to take off his pants. And uh, yeah, he's very courageously going to take off his pants. It doesn't matter who is going to stop him. Your mom, your mm-hmm. dad. The police, mm-hmm. not even the president can stop him from mm-hmm. taking off his pants until you get to the end of the song. And then he's like, could you take off my pants? And apparently he doesn't want to do it after all. <laughs> he can't do it. Renny Newman mm-hmm. has had a long career, Mary. He started, yeah. he started at the age of 17 Ooh. writing songs for And people. now he's 100. Now he's 100. He wrote, for a lot of people, the Fleetwoods, Pat Boone, Gene Pitney, Jerry Butler, Petula Clark, Dusty Springfield, Jackie DeShannon, the OJs, and Irma Thomas all performed songs by Randy Newman. Even before he was a performing musician. Then with Lenny Warren Kerr, who kind of became this head, uh, so, head, head producer at Warner Brothers, he, Leon Russell, and Van Dyke Parks began... Uh, first, they just were hired for session mus- as session musicians for Lenny Warren Kerr because he was friends with them all and he wanted to use them. But then they kind of fashioned the sound of Warner Brothers. They didn't mean to, but they did. Like, And Randy Newman had a big part of that, hmm. which led to the success of Warner Brothers as, like a, rock, as a rock music label, which... I would say never under never underestimate the power of hip because that's what those guys brought to the label was this sort of super hipness, yeah, you know, like coolness. Um, he put in his first album, Randy Newman, I think in 1969, and it was not a commercial success. It was a critical success, but it was not a commercial success. But everyone, a huge list of artists, covered songs from it, and I mean big names like Barbara Streisand, right? Helen Reddy, Bette Midler, wow, uh, Alan Price, Van Dyke Parks, Van. Dave Van Ronk, Judy mm-hmm. Collins, mm-hmm. Cass Elliott, Art Garfunkel, The Everly Brothers, mm. Colleen Langer, Bonnie Raitt, Dusty Springfield, Nina Simone, Lynn Anderson, Wilson Pickett, Pat Boone, Neil Diamond, and Peggy Lee all covered songs from that album. Holy lots. The same ones. Obviously, there wasn't that many songs on it, but... Yeah, I was going to say. he kind of His career kind of went the same way throughout, throughout the 70s. He would put on an album like Sail Away or Good Old Boys... Critics would fall over themselves about how great it was. The public would say, yeah, it's pretty good, I guess. Mm-hmm. I don't know if I want to hear this guy, but okay. <laughs> then in 1977, he had a surprise hit with a song called Short People that came from his album Little Criminals. So it was a total fluke hit. Yeah. 
because the sad part of it is there's an even better song on the album called Rider in the Rain, which is a song that makes fun of the Eagles. Oh. Why wasn't that a hit? Why wasn't that a big hit? Did we? Rider in the Rain. That sounds familiar. Uh, I think you're thinking of Morning Rider on the Road. Oh, I Partridge am. Family the Partridge song. Family one. You're yeah. right. So w- when he started doing Born Again, his sixth album, everyone was like, here it comes. It's going to be Randy Newman's biggest album ever. Like, finally he broke. Like, I don't understand why people don't understand, like, a song like Short People, a song that tells you how much you dislike short people. Yeah. And it's a fluke hit. Like, right. That's not something that people are going to be like, I can't wait till that guy puts out another song about how much he hates tall people. <laughs> like, that's not... People are waiting for that, right? Yeah. So he puts out Born Again, his sixth album, and he had high hopes for it. He did. Yeah. Not because of the fluke of, of, little, of little Criminals, but because he seriously thought it was like a really good album. Right. And then the album sold poorly, but even which is normal. But even worse, it was critically derided at oh, the time, no. which is not something that happened with his records. Usually, yeah. everyone was falling all over themselves to to uh, talk about how great it was. Talk about how great it was. Yeah, like they characterized the album as cynical and nihilistic and hmm. stuff like that. The problem, I think, the problem though is that this is my this is why I think the album didn't work in that way. Is I think that unlike say Sail Away, which has songs in there where the characters are not the people listening to the record, right? Like Sail Away, like Sail, the song Sail Away is a song being sung by a, a slave trader to black people in Africa. And he's telling them about the freedom they'll have when they get to America. Well, of course, we can despise that person and, and, and we don't know them. Right, because there's a distance. Yeah, there's a distance. And the same with Good Old Boys. You know, it's a song of kind of, it's a so, sort of social political look at the South. Yeah. You know, and it makes fun of Good Old Boys to a degree. And, and, and once again, for Northern rock journalists, they're mm-hmm. removed from that. Yeah. You know, but when you get to when he did Born Again, he's making fun of everyday people. There's a song there called Mr. Sheep. Right. Where this guy is like mocking this businessman for being like such such a square. You yeah. Know? But then these people are like, but I'm a businessman. <laughs> I don't even think they're thinking that. They're thinking, well, this is mean spirited. Yeah. Making fun of just some square guy. Yeah. Because I see that guy all the day, all the time when, I, when I'm going to the, the train station and he's getting on the train, the commuter train. Why are, you know, like, like, a hippie make you know what I mean? Like, but they don't mm-hmm. understand is that the person being mocked in the song is the person singing the song. Yeah. Like not Randy Newman, but the the voice that he's singing. The in. character, yeah. That's the character who he's mocking. The right. person making fun of this guy who's yeah. called Mr. Sheep. And I think because, but I think because it was too contemporary and too localized that 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 the the dis the, the distance didn't allow for the irony that that uh, Randy Newman was intending. Right. And so. Yeah, it's weird. And I was reading a modern review of this album, and the 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 reviewer called Pants inappropriate. And I thought, what a weird thing to say about a goofy song like Pants. Yeah. Like, it's in no way does it feel like it's Inappro- sexual. Yeah, sexual. It just no. feels like a weird, like a guy who's just going to take off his pants, you know? And yet can't do it. Cause, yeah. Because, you know, all his bravado, which is which is epitomized in the opening of the song. The, the organs and stuff like that, you know, yeah. like creating this big sense of awe and, mm-hmm. and then the song itself is completely silly. Yeah, and like the like the point of the song isn't so much that he's going to take off his pants. Yeah. But that at the end he's incapable of it, right? <laughs> yeah, it's yeah. like the it's the twist. Exactly. That's yeah, that's yeah. funny, right? We're yeah. like, yeah, this you are like so obviously shown, yeah, the bravado mm-hmm. and like falseness of this person who's like building himself up yeah, to yeah. this like thing that he's like, I'm gonna do this thing, and no one can tell me I can't, <laughs> except I I cannot do it though. <laughs> I I can't do this though. Yeah, 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 yeah. No, it's 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 interesting. I was I was I was curious reading the reviews of it. It's because I like to get people's opinions of it and stuff. And sometimes you can pick up little tidbits of of gossip yeah. from around the time, but. 
There wasn't much. There wasn't much, but uh, yeah, it's curious. Okay, that leaves us one more song. One more song? Yeah. What is it? This song is Pocket Calculator by the German group Kraftwerk. Okay. From their album Computer World from 1981. Cool. So let's give a listen. What a futuristic song. It's from the future, everyone. Let's give a listen to Pocket Calculator.
we're back. And Mary, mm-hmm. were you as excited about pocket calculators as the singer of this song? Well, I don't know. Let me just pull up my pocket calculator to read my notes. Um, no. Didn't like it? No. <laughs> what, what, what didn't you like about it? It sounded like a video game soundtrack. Okay. Okay. Well, I mean, I mean, Kraftwerk were pioneers of electronic music. Yeah. I think they influence a lot of people. And I think okay. I think you're hearing that for sure. In their right. Music. So yeah. I'm, I'm interpreting it the wrong way. No, no. It's like, not, you're not interpreting it the wrong like way. It's like people but... who watch Psycho and they're like, this is derivative. <laughs> <laughs> I've seen this a million times. That's right. You're like, um, no. <laughs> no, you had to be my grandma thinking this in the theater. <laughs> losing her mind. Yeah. Yeah. So Kraftwerk were, yeah, they were pioneers of, um, they started off as like kind of a, I mean, they started off in the Kraut Rock scene, which, you know, is like a silly name given to German music by Melody Maker, but it's kind of stuck through the years. And they kind of, they started there with like, you know, they had guitars, they had drums and things like that in, in their group. For their first two albums, uh, Michael Rother and Klaus Dinger from Neu, who went on to form Neu, were in the group for a while. Just like, they were just like a normal group. On their third album, though, they like ditched all the normal stuff. Like the niche, ditch, like even one of the guys played flute through, he just got rid of that. They just started only playing synthesizer, synthesizers and electronic d- drums from that point on. They had two more members, uh, Wolfgang Fleur and the guy named Carl Bartos, and they were just brought in for electronic percussion. And uh, so, yeah, so the albums were exploring. And I think one of the things to understand about like Crow Rock for one thing, but also particularly Kraftwerk was their attempt to like completely rid themselves of any influence of like blues rock or any kind of 60s elements to the music they just want to like create like something that was brand new and was sort of untouched by other musical forms and i don't think they're entirely successful at that because they're still working in like a pop music format when you listen to a song like pocket calculator so it's still drawing from that tradition but it is sort of alien sounding in terms of it's like soundscape because of all the electronics and stuff like that mm-hmm. particularly at that time like no we're not not so much but at that time, it was very different. Like, I remember when I got this CD, or not CD, when I got this single for Pocket Calculator, like, I just fell in love with it. Yeah. Because it was silly, which yeah. is one thing I love about music. And it would have also been very new at the time, it was right? crazily new, yeah. right? Like, I just thought, this is, like, so different sounding. Yeah. Like, what is going on? And I hadn't, I was too young to, like, know about Audubon, the album Audubon, or yeah. or uh, Man, uh, Man Machine and stuff like that. Well, those, I mean, those things were under my radar entirely. Yeah, and I mean, you were... They were German as well, right? Yeah, yeah. So, like, they would have been expensive and but, like, I mean, inaccessible. They were, re- they were released here. In, oh, were uh, they? They were released here in England and stuff like that. But, yeah, I just, I just didn't know about them because they just weren't publicized. Like, yeah. at that point, I didn't know about Especially university radio. Especially not to middle schoolers. Yeah, I didn't know about university radio stations, and I wasn't listening at that point to, to CITR, our local university station. Mm-hmm. So, I missed, I missed all... Oops, dang it. I missed all that. Uh, that was my glasses, everyone. <laughs> I, Dad's I, been really clumsy today. Yeah. What's going on? I don't know. It's my birthday. Birthday bumps. Yep. Just giving them to myself. <laughs> it's been falling down all day. <laughs> only f- only 31 more to go. <laughs> 50, 55 bumps today. So I had them all black and blue. So yeah, I mean, I understand why you don't like it. It's not, you know, it's, it's silly. They're singing about a pocket calculator, which at the time was pretty new. Yes. Like when this song came out in 1981... I just, I pretty much, I just bought my own pocket calculator, right. my, my Texas Instrument scientific calculator, so I could figure out cosines and tangents. Yeah. Before that time, it was all slide rules. Oh, so you're, using, you're using an abacus. And the album itself is, I was using, I wasn't using an abacus, my fingers. <laughs> the a kid that I was tutoring actually would use an abacus and found it very helpful. 
Okay. Just to visualize yeah, the I numbers. Think, yeah, I think that would be good. Yeah I, yeah. I never learned how to use an abacus, but I think that if I had learned how to use one, it would have been helpful. Mm. Just because it does help you like see it. Yeah. I think it yeah. probably would have been helpful for Eve too, because she's sure. a very visual learner. Yeah. 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 Yeah, I think that was. Uh, anyway, um, so yeah, so so the um, the album itself is about the idea of like the oncoming integration of computers into 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 society mm-hmm. like it hadn't really happened yet but they could kind of see the future of yeah. like home computer and stuff like that that's what the album's about there is a it's called computer there's a song called computer worlds basically right. saying like you know the world is going to become like, uh and what are were... you talking about let me just check the computer on my wrist to see what time it is <laughs> oh 10 20 and i have a text oh cool oh i've got a bunch of emails <laughs> yeah Oh my god, I have so many. I have to clear this. Uh, they also use some new technology. Uh, well, they use some new technology. They One of the songs they used, the Texas Instruments um, tr- automatic translator. Cool. They could translate uh, sounds into, into, like, you know, translate one language into another. And so they use that for some of the singing on it. But they also used a, a new keyboard called an orchestron, which uh, was the kind of professional version of the Optigan, which was an organ that came out that used. It was kind of like a Mellotron. Okay. It, it used, but instead of using cassette tape, it, it or tape, reels of tape, it used um, optical discs, kind of like little CDs cool. or DVDs, CDs or DVDs or yeah. I think they were big, bigger. They might have been like laser discs, but anyway, they were in it and they contained the samples, and then you would play those samples from the, from the disc. Cool. But they also use old technology too. Like in this song, there's a part where the, there's a little uh, electronic device that goes and that's a that's a um, a stylophone, which was this little. It looked like a xylophone, but it was like a little metal strip, and then you had a metal stylus you would hold in your hand, and you could play notes on it. So as soon as you touched it to the to the metal plate on on the device, it would start to make a make a noise like like a then, buzzing. Yeah, and you could like and you could move it up and down and play different cool. notes. And actually, David Bowie used it on Space Oddity. Oh, okay. In 1968 or 69 or 69, cool. I think. So so it's been around a while. Yeah. So yeah, they're but. You know, it still sounded kind of neat in the song. Yeah, definitely. It it fits. Yeah. Fits yeah. with Space Oddity, fits with this. So anyway, that's the last song, everyone. Of this side. Of we this still side, have another yeah. side. But you you enjoyed it pretty well, though. That's yep, good. I did. Yeah, I'm glad. I'm glad. But we'll see how I like the other side. Oof. There's pressure's on, folks, but you got to wait. Jeez. Let's hit my glasses again again. i got to figure out a different way to put this <laughs> stuff together. i got to wait. you got to wait two weeks. Yep. Well, until, until then... If you would like to contact us and yeah, let us know what you... Yeah, how about contact us and tell us what you thought about the top 20 at 20? Jeez. Here we go, Amir. Are you sure that episode posted? Well, now you got me worried. <laughs> it, it posted. Um, you can contact us by going to our website, which is sneakydragon.com. On there, there's a contact us page, which has our email address, our Facebook, our Twitter, our mailing address, um, and also our email. So our email is sneakyd at sneakydragon.com. Our Facebook is Sneaky Dragon, and our Twitter is Sneaky underscore Dragon. And those are all available for you to see on our website, SneakyDragon.com. You can also comment on our episode um, sort of message comments there. We often have some good conversations going in there. So we'd love to see your comments. That's true. Actually, think about it. There were some comments on the, on the last episode. Oh, you're just, I was just being uh, passive aggressive. I was just being histrionic as usual. Yeah. And I have a, one last thing to say, Mary. Okay. Happy birthday to me. Dad, we're going to get sued by Sony. Happy birthday to me. This is very uncomfortable. Happy birthday 
David Dedrick. Okay, I'm going to go. This is weird. Happy well, bye, everyone. We'll see you in two weeks. I'm going to try to talk to over this because it's very me. weird. It's even worse seeing his face right now while he's singing it. Okay, bye. Bye. We'll see you in two weeks. I'm sorry about this. You don't have to keep listening. And many no. more.